Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we've did, we done one of these. We done one of these? Um, <laughs> it's been a while, Clearly. so long since yeah. I've <laughs> so long that I've forgotten how to talk. Yeah, I'm David. I'm Tyler, and uh, we have no time for fucking around. No. Because it's been so long, we got a lot of movies to get to. So what's um, in the news today? <laughs> oh, nothing good. Nothing good. Um, so, uh, now I'm cutting out, obviously we've talked, we, have, we haven't done one of these in a while, but we did talk about Next Fest, mm-hmm. um, and we talked about the real thing. Yep. So I won't be talking about any of those again. You can check out those episodes if you want to hear my thoughts on the movies I saw at Next Fest and the real thing. And there's a couple things I'm uh, under embargo for. Um <laughs> that I won't be talking about. So I'm going to jump in with a documentary that uh, uh, I went to the, uh, the arc light uh, to see. I don't go to the arc light very often. Yeah. Me either. Because uh, it's freaking expensive, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes there's stuff that's only playing at the arc light. Yeah. Um, and so I went to see a documentary called abortion stories. Women tell. Oh. Uh, it's fantastic. Okay. Um, it's, <clears throat> uh, we can't spend too long in any one movie here, but I, I, I want to, uh, I, I want to say that, okay, this is not in, it's not necessarily, you wouldn't call this a, an even handed look at the issue of abortion. Right. Um, this is a pro choice movie, but unlike, I know you and I, Tyler, both have similar issues, maybe to different extents, uh, with Michael Moore. Yeah, in the sense that he's—it's not just that he's biased; it's that he's disingenuous he's, and dishonest. Uh, yeah, and um, that's not what this is. Um, this is a movie that is, yeah, on the one hand, clearly pro-choice, but um, never misrepresents uh, the yeah. pro-life point of view. In fact, gives the people who are pro-life um, time and room to to talk um hmm. and the the um the conceit of the movie that only dawned even though it's in the title it only dawned on me over time is that um it's called abortion stories women tell uh it pretty much interviews only women on both okay. sides of the issue okay. um there are some men who show up like you see ma- male um protesters outside of, outside of one of the clinics and then you see one of the one of the girls who had an abortion you talk to the the father Um, uh, but they're clearly presented as this is secondary to the main thing. This is, um, this is about women and not just as I assumed when I heard the title, I thought, okay, this is going to be interviews with women who have had abortions. Um, and it's, I mean, it is largely that that's largely the structure of it, but it's also about the female abortion doctors, the female protesters, the female security guard who works at one of the, um, uh, um, uh, clinics. Um, uh, the other thing I didn't know going in because I tend to not read a lot about a movie before I see it. I tend to just look at, uh, this sounds interesting. And once I know enough that I'm interested, I stop because I don't want to know too much. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know is that it's about Missouri, which is where I'm from. Uh, although, um, a large portion of it, um, it takes place at two clinics, one in the Columbia, Missouri area. And then a large, about half the movie actually take, technically takes place in Illinois in Granite city oh, okay. because, um, that's uh, for women in a large portion of Missouri. That's the, um, the closest, uh, abortion clinic. Um, because as it turns out, and I didn't know this having moved away from Missouri when I was 18 years old and not having lived there again, really I've been back to visit, yeah. but, um, put it in your rear view and you never look. <laughs> yeah. Back. Um, 
Missouri, in the time since I've left, has become one of the strictest. It's it's one of the hardest states in the country to get an abortion in. Has it really? Uh, yes. Um, I yeah. thought it was like. I thought as a state, like politically, I thought it was pretty split. I, uh, growing up, yeah, I mean, we were both there at the same time, and I always thought of it as a more moderate state. I knew that I yeah. my family was pretty Republican, but this is also a state that um, not only elected Mel Carnahan, a Democratic right. governor, but um, uh, elected him after he died. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I know like people make fun of, uh, and I understand making fun of it, but I totally voted for dead Mel Carnahan. Uh, it was oh. <laughs> my first... <laughs> My first election in which I could vote, and I was like, I'm casting uh, one vote for Mel Carnahan's corpse. I do um, like the idea of someone being called called Dead Mel Carnahan. <laughs> Call me Dead Mel. Um, and I, I'm being like facetious here, but I was actually a big fan of uh, Mel Carnahan. Um, we're getting way off topic already, which we aren't supposed yeah. to do. Yeah, but um, but he was a, a pro-choice governor, mm-hmm. um, and. He, uh, I saw him address a, a very pro-life crowd once when I was in high school, um, and I really appreciated his um, matter-of-factness and his respect, um, but his sticking to his guns on the issue, um, very pro-Mel Carnahan, and I'm sorry that he uh, died before he could uh, be elected, but um, he was elected again anyway, yeah. um, and his wife, Jean Carnahan, uh, served. And you and I know this, but yeah, uh, not everyone who listens knows that, that about like, she's Missouri. Not a, she's not a governor, <laughs> except <laughs> yeah. she is now. Yeah, I mean, she's not now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Missouri definitely has a, a Republican governor now. Um, so, yeah, I guess the the state has gone to the right um, quite a bit since we lived there. That's weird. Although, from what I'm un- uh, understanding, like a lot of... Like a lot of red states, it is back in play, at least for the presidential election this fall. As they Um, all should be. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But anyway, uh, yeah, Abortion Stories Women Tell. um, It's a fantastic movie that made me feel, um, had have conflicting feelings about my home state. But also, just aside from its uh, issue-centric nature, just as in its sense of place, weirdly made me feel like, nostalgic and homesick like it really has a sense of <laughs> of the uh, of of the place and the tenor of um uh, of of missouri and of the especially in the st louis area where it's very catholic um that comes through um but it doesn't uh, i was gonna say i was gonna say yeah and i, I stick with it it doesn't mock pro-lifers at all it's very respective although it does it doesn't have any kindness to spare for the people who stand outside uh, clinics and shout, but it also interviews plenty of pro-life people who also don't feel that way. Like who also are like, they're not doing any good out there. Um, I was going to say it doesn't mock and it doesn't, but I did laugh at least once partially because I'm an asshole. Okay. But uh, I want to get your opinion on this. Okay. There's a part where it's a, I think it's at a, at a church slash school. There's going to be a, um, like a fundraise, like a pro-life, fundraising okay. right um and you see the woman who's running it uh and another another guy who's co-running it we don't meet him because like i said the yeah. movie's focused on women um ta- and he says how many are we, res- were we expecting for this and she says something like 280 something like that and he goes oh we're not gonna have enough food and there's a pause and she goes god will provide <laughs> 
and I laughed. Because <laughs> um, that, that doesn't is, seem it's likely. A, it's a very Missouri type thing. And it's just like, like, well, we've got these loaves and fishes. I'm sure it'll work out. Um, but uh, I tell you what gets me, and I keep, I keep chuckling at it, is the title. And I know that sounds terrible, but it almost... Okay, here's how I read it. Uh-huh. Abortion. Stories women tell. <laughs> just like, you know, they do go on about abortion. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is the, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I definitely hear it. Um, man, we, uh, and then I'm going to do my, my second one here. And man, I did not intend for this to be so uh, uh, one-two punchy back-to-back with the uh, um, lefty political movies. Okay. But the second one I saw... Uh, which I actually don't think is um, necessarily a left-leaning movie, although I think there are a lot of right-wing people who will be who will find it difficult to be convinced of that. You tell me, and I'll let you know if uh, it is or not. The movie is called Southside with You. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and I am. I have to imagine. You, now you haven't seen it yet, right? No. Um, I was skeptical going in. I have to imagine you, as a conservative, are very skeptical about this movie. Yeah. Um, and I'm here to tell you it's really good uh, because it generally avoids um, hagiography or lionizing or mm-hmm. glorifying. Um, it's more about... It feels more... The worst I could say about it is that it is intended as an apologia for um, President Obama's critics on the left. Okay. You know, those who think he's not um, left-leaning enough, that he's too much of a centrist, um, which I, uh, on certain issues, I am uh, one of them. Um, because really what this movie is about, uh, and it's a neat trick that it pulls off, that it manages to be a very impassioned and heartfelt movie that is an argument for pragmatism and compromise and understanding, like very sort of things that seem like dispassionate, dispassionate, um, philosophies. Um, but it, it seems like most of it is making the case that if you treat others with respect whether they agree with you or not and talk out your differences and look for things you do agree on. That's a better way to move forward. Um, I, 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 I find that to be kind of, it's one of the way I'm saying it, it seems like a really dry argument, but I do seem, I do feel like it, the movie makes a, a very heartfelt case for that. Okay. What is it? What is your grimace? You haven't seen the movie, so what are your thoughts on? Well, first off, I don't think that's how Obama operates. But uh, I'm not saying that the movie thinks that either. Okay, so, so it's not saying that like that this is his philosophy, and he's saying I just got to get to Washington. Well, yeah, well, and, you uh, know. President Obama was not a screenwriter here. <laughs> no, I know, but it's just here's the thing. I can't help think of okay. Well, what's a movie that was made about George W. Bush in the last year of his presidency? Which I, oh, I never saw that. W. Yeah, I never saw Which that. is actually not a bad movie and is uh, not unlike Nixon. It is more sympathetic than one would think. <laughs> Definitely more than one would think. But at the same time, like, it was very clear that uh, there's still a lot of condemnation there. Like, 
you with George W. Bush, you had, and I'm not a defender of George W. Bush, but you had a fil- an incendiary filmmaker who obviously is against this man trying to find some humanity, and that's admirable a lot, tremendously admirable. But with this, when I hear about it, and just like it's just like this nice kind of a nice love story with these two people, and it's, it's like, barely a love story. Oh, they're not in love. <laughs> Is that well, your it's theory? the first date. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, okay. I, th- I, I thought it was uh, like a, a few weeks into their relationship. I no, I mean, they've known I... each other because they work together. Okay, okay. But this it, is their it. first date. Okay. Um, from what I understand, story-wise, it's a composite of the real sure. Barack and Michelle's early first dates. Um, yeah. There's, a, there's a better title right there. Uh, yeah. To make it into um, one sort of... It's a very sort of before sunrise-ish or before yeah. sunset, I guess, because most of it takes place during the day. Um, uh, just one day walking yeah. around doing different stuff and talking type of movie. I guess it's just, it's a thing that, you know, I guess you can call me knee jerk reactionary or whatever it is, but just part of me is like, wow, the timing's interesting that at a time, like it's in the middle of an election, we're trying to humanize. And even though he's not running for office, his secretary of state is, and so we want a continuation of, of policies. So we want, but we don't want it to be overtly political. But in humanizing, and of course, yeah. there's no, no harm in humanizing somebody. But it just it just seems so calculated to me. The movie could be great. Like um, I said, I I'm, thought not, I'm not saying it's great. Good. I think it's very good. Okay. Um, and I don't think that you will come out of it thinking about um hillary clinton at all i don't think it's gonna it it doesn't do that because it's so much of it is about like um these people like it's very much about the fact that they're black people Mm -hmm. um in the late 1980s and um they're most of the area they're walking around is um you know uh blighted type Mm -hmm. you know um south side of chicago um especially at that at that time and still today, I mean, or I guess I haven't, lived, I haven't been to Chicago and it's been 10 years for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, almost exactly 10 years. Anyway. Um, no, that's not true. I was there in 2012. Not. Yeah. So it's been four years. Okay. Um, anyway, that's not important. Um, it's a very hopeful movie about people who, um, come from, a background that very few of our leaders um, have come from talking, not as, you know, firebrands revolutionaries, but people who believe in the goodness of other people. And that by working with the assumption of goodness in mind can go on to become leaders and, potentially change the world. Um, I, I, I think that's, it's, I would like to see more, um, conservative, uh, reviews of the movie, um, to see how, if people can separate or if they even need to, cause that's a, 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 yeah. a question, you know, am I, am I easier on the movie because I'm not as hard on, president obama well that can be plenty hard on president obama sure i more than anything it really is just the timing of it um that just uh gets me thinking about it uh along in 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 an even slightly negative way 
but I mean, this is a movie that has been, you know, it premiered at Sundance in January. Right. So the timing of the release has more to do with the distributor who picked it up than anything else. Sure. You know, I, I don't know that. if you can blame uh, Richard Tan or Tanny, um, the director, for what week the movie came out. Yeah. Um, but I'll say this uh, for Obama's, uh, President Obama's critics. Um, they, I mean, they, the movie does kind of make him cool, but it also doesn't pull any punches on him being really arrogant a lot of the time. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, and and Michelle kind of representing a, a force who makes him less arrogant, not by being, you know, at all maternal or anything, but by now challenging Barack him. or anything like no, that. No, like by standing up to him and like, okay. these are, uh, they are, I think in my review, I said something like them being whetstones for one another's minds. Like they're, hmm. yeah, sharpening each other. Yeah. And I think the, that's a, that's, that's the thing is it's entirely possible. I would enjoy this movie all day long. You know, it really is just the, the timing and, that that fact is something that will go away in my mind. The timing of it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that I can probably watch. You know, it's not Fahrenheit 9-11, you know, which yeah. is very much rooted in the time that it, uh, that it was released um, and that it was made. So what? I was going to say I'll be mentioning Fahrenheit 9-11 later, but I won't because I'm under embargo on this movie that I saw. <laughs> oh, all right. I was like. The movie's been out for a while, Dave. No. It's been out for a good 12 years. I don't... I, I, I was talking to uh, a friend of ours at a screening about, like... It's weird when a movie has been, like... Like, usually when you're placed under embargo for a movie... Yeah. It's a big movie that is, like... It's usually a studio movie. Yeah. And often it's something that they don't want bad reviews out. But sometimes... It's a smaller movie that has been playing festivals all year yeah. to great reviews, but they just want to hold some of the buzz so it doesn't get, lo- I guess, swallowed up, you know? I guess I could see that. But it does feel frustrating. There's a couple of movies that I saw this week that are both phenomenal that I really wish I could tell you about. <laughs> man, oh, man. <laughs> well, we'll have to save that for off mic in another week, I'm sure, because we've yeah. we got too much stuff to do. All right, well, okay. what have you seen? So I saw a film called Hell or High Water. I assume it's like Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Working with <laughs> the Bomb. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have a whole lot of... Uh, I didn't have a high expectation for this movie. It it seemed like it would be a perfectly fine film that uh, had certain artistic pretensions and that sort of thing. But it's it is a very very well made film, very well written, well paced, um, wonderfully acted all the way around. Uh, and it has Chris Pine and Ben Foster as these two brothers who uh, are their mother has died and they're going to lose her ranch, which they discover, um, uh, there's oil on it, uh, and the bank owns it. And so they're trying to raise enough money. And by raise, I mean, steal, steal enough money to basically buy it back. And because the bank, when the bank, uh, repossessed it and sort of refinanced it, they did it in such a way as to really, screw over this family because the bank also knows that there is oil on it. And so, um, so they're going, 
and uh, going through the state of Texas and robbing every branch of this bank so that they can then pay it back, <laughs> pay it back its own money. So, um, who's the director? Uh, hang on, it's someone. It's David McKenzie who made oh, Startup. Yes, he made Startup, and he made Young Adam, which is also a really good movie. Okay, and then he made a movie that I can't. I, I think it was released in the U.S. as was it called Tonight You're Mine or was that the U.K. title? Um, that was not as good. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. I don't know. Um, but Startup and Young Adam are both great. Startup especially. I've, I've seen neither one. I've heard that I would like Startup quite a bit. Um, but this movie is just, uh, you know, at times it feels like it's trying maybe a bit too hard to be No Country for Old Men. But it, it, as far as its visual style and and the nature of the the lawman character played in this by Jeff Bridges in kind of his standard not standard but you know as he's become more of a character actor uh, you know he'll employ a certain type of accent and that sort of thing and in some movies that's kind of all he's doing um, like that one movie that I've forgotten Seventh Son uh-huh. you know and then something like uh, like The Giver where he's just kind of you know, with Rooster Cogburn, it makes sense mm-hmm. uh, what he's doing. But with these other characters, it's almost as like, all right, I don't have anything here, so uh, I'm just going to do a voice and we'll go, we'll move out from there. Uh, and there is definitely an element of that to this character, but there's enough there that he, as an actor, does find and really explores, and it's very it's very interesting. Um, but I do, th- and it's wonderfully shot and cut together very well, and and it's. I've been I've been thinking more and more these days about story structure. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a thing I used to think about very much, but when a film is structured well, um, which is to say, there's pacing, there's you know character development, and the things that prompt character development, um, you know things that are that are set up and then paid off. It's something that I that I have a, a more of an appreciation for uh, these days. And so the film is structured remarkably well. And I will say that Ben Foster, who's a guy that I think you and I have been fans of for a while, ever since I think Liberty Heights, right? Yeah. Um, I think that might be the first thing I was aware of. Um, I was just thinking about Liberty Heights the other day when he goes um, to the, his Gentile friend's house. Yeah. And he eats turkey with mayo and white bread with milk. <laughs> and he's like, all their food is white. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good movie. People should, yeah. you know, it's not a great movie, but it's a good movie. Yeah. And it deserves to be, I think, uh, rediscovered or discovered for the first time. Um, yeah, Ben Foster is in many, way, in many ways unrecognizable. He clearly put on some weight. He, I think he shaved his hairline back a little bit hmm. and um, grew a mustache. But also his character, which we've seen so many times before, which is the reckless yeah, there's two brothers and this is the reckless one. Uh-huh. We know what to expect from that. Uh, but the way that he carries himself and just the way that he delivers his dialogue and that sort of thing. So, so you're saying he plays that character that Tom Hardy played in legend. Yes. But then Chris Pine plays the character that Tom Hardy played in the legend. Yes. Okay. Yes. I hate you. So, um, but yeah, and I don't mean to take anything away from Chris Pine. The nature of his character is that he's a bit more subdued in the midst of character, uh, of characters that are, uh, a bit, uh, bigger than life. But it's a movie that, that, like I said, my expectations were just kind of mid-level and the movie really surprised me. I was engaged the whole time. 
It has a really great final scene. And if you can see it, I, I would highly recommend doing so. I think it's still in limited release right now. Oh, yeah. I hope so. Uh, maybe I'll go see it uh, over the long Labor Day weekend. Um, next up for me, I saw Timur Bekmambetov's Ben-Hur. Oh, really? So if you're keeping track of the big studio blockbusters I've seen this summer, it's The Legend of Tarzan and Ben-Hur. Yeah. And I guess Finding Dory. Sure. Those are like the big <laughs> movies that I saw this summer. Um, so you saw Ben-Hur and I did not. Yeah, Ben-Hur, The Story of the Christ, yeah. which is what the novel is called. Because um, this is not, to be clear, this is not a remake of the 1959 movie. Right. This is another adaptation of the 18-whatever, hundred uh, late 1800s uh, novel. Um, and uh, it's, I think, based on, it's certainly, it's... Um, advertising and its box office performance. I was kind of expecting a mess. The movie's not a mess. Yeah. It's perfectly competently made. Um, and, and, you know, handsomely shot and well acted, but it's the kind of movie that a year from now, I will have a very difficult time remembering any specifics of. It's yeah. just kind of, uh, milk toast, I guess. Um, that's exactly how I saw it. How I, how I thought of it. Yeah. It's, um, I d- yeah, I don't really have much uh, to say about it. There's a couple of dumb things um, that I think. Um, there's some stuff in the third act that we talked a few weeks ago on the main uh, run of episodes <laughs> about studio interference. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that I, I don't know if I'm just particularly sensitive to it or if other people notice this as much as I do, but it really sticks out to me when movies um, have very obvious ADR that was added later to clarify whatever, you know, like you'll see some sort of like establishing shot and you'll hear the characters like talking. Um, and that's why I would say 70% of the reason that, uh, they came together and made my top 10 list was because it had a joke about that. That was one of (laughs) one of the maybe greatest cinematic jokes I've ever seen in the history of movies. I'll have to rewatch it. You don't remember? I've seen it. I've seen it twice so it's now. Like, and I don't remember. It's the shot of, and then we'll get back to Ben Hur. But it's the car driving through, like, uh, you know, a two lane highway, and <clears throat> you hear Amy Poehler's character say, "Like, in what you think is ADR, like, I'm so glad you decided to spend Thanksgiving with my family or whatever." Yeah. But then, as the camera like pulls back, that's right. The car passes, and you realize, oh, they're actually they're standing, standing right there, there right. on the side of the road. That's nice. That's such a brilliant joke. Yeah. That I like. I wanted to like, I wanted to stop and like, I want to, I want to say projection to stop, pause the movie. I need, I need to take a second to, <laughs> to like reflect on how amazing a joke that was. Anyway, Ben-Hur in the, in its third act has, um, definitely some of that. There's a couple, there's a scene where, um, well, there's a scene where Jesus is crucified. Okay. Spoilers. All right. I'm with you. <laughs> um, and uh, it rains after that, like immediately, um, almost like the movie is suggesting that he ascended and then the rain okay. fell. And so you see a couple of characters who have developed leprosy over the course of the movie. It rains on them and then they are healed. And clearly someone thought this isn't clear what's happening. And so they're standing in the rain looking at their skin or whatever. And then you hear one of them say, we're healed. <laughs> <laughs> I had leprosy before, but I yeah. don't now. Probably because of this rain. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a, and there's a, a couple other ones. Um, someone else I saw with was laughing at one. There's, cause this is just ridiculous. Okay. Cause this one's so <laughs> stupid. There's a, so, you know, there's a, this big chariot race where almost everyone gets yeah. killed. That's yeah. what it is. It's like a very violent, uh, it's like a blood sport. Um, and it's people from all over, you know, the, the area, um, the, the region of the world competing. So mm-hmm. they, you know, our characters, whatever they're, I don't know what they spoke, uh, in Jesus times, Aramaic, whatever. Probably. Yeah. Um, our characters are speaking English okay. because it's an English language. Are they movie. doing it with a British accent at yeah. least? Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, uh, That's I mean, I guess know. they are British. Well, no, it's, um, uh, so I guess, uh, what's his name? Jack Houston. Jack Houston. Yeah. He's who's not British. Yeah, He's American. Um, but, uh, Toby Kebel plays, um, okay. the, M- Masella, the, yeah. the, the other, the other guy. Um, and he is British anyway. Um, and then, uh, Paolo from lost plays Jesus. Um, hmm. uh, anyway, so there's, so the other people who are competing, most of them don't, you see, you hear them shouting and most of them aren't speaking English cause they're speaking their native, whatever. And so one guy gets knocked off his carriage and then he's like stumbling around the thing and then he gets like run over and killed by yeah. uh um but clearly someone said well what's he still doing on the course and so they ADR'd a line of this character who has not spoken english in the entire movie oh no saying my helmet like he's going back to get his helmet and that's why he gets run over <laughs> it's so glaring oh wow <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm not going to just list all the ADR things because I don't want to sound like I'm just sitting here making fun of the movie because it's a perfectly fine movie. Yeah. Um, but it's not particularly, uh, memorable. Well, and it's so interesting because, you know, when you're, when you're in the world that I am, which is a Christian who's interested in film and you see just how much this movie was marketed to a Christian audience. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so clear that they, they were, the, the studio and it would appear the industry itself was like banking on this movie doing well. And, and they, and it's weird. It's, it's always odd to hear cause it's not a no, it's not overtly a Christian film or anything like that, but the people behind the publicity, you hear the way they talk about like, Oh, this movie, like look at these amazing effects and all that sort of thing. And it's just always fascinating to hear Christians just like stumble around in the dark, trying to figure out, and trying to assure themselves and other people why a certain movie should work and why <laughs> it should do well. And it's just like, oh, look at all these effects and just, you know, and the original Ben-Hur was one of the biggest movies of all time. It's like, yeah, it was. When was that? Oh, that was 59, I believe, right? Yeah, so that was a while ago. I'd say uh, sensibilities have changed. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this big chariot race. Yeah, you're putting this in the middle of summer we're used to spectacle and this is not going to be that exciting. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll be fine, but it's not going to be, it's not going to stand that's a good out. Point. It, yeah. It feels like a B movie compared it's, Yeah, the, the chariot race might be spectacular, but it's not, uh, yeah. Captain America. Civil Do War one of the or... chariots turn in, does it turn into a robot? No, then I'm sorry. I'm out. Uh, and then the other thing is, I just Jack, an idea for another Ben Hur remake. The, oh, absolutely. Uh, ben Hur meets, uh, transformers. Yeah. Uh, and they've turned uh, Optimus Prime into enough of a Christ figure already 
by having him die and then come back and all that kind of thing. But um, you know a lot more about Transformers than I do. Yeah, I guess I do. That's weird. I've only seen the first one. Is that true? Yeah. I haven't even seen all the first one. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, to your credit. Um, I could, uh, I've seen 43 minutes the first one. Do you know that's, have I told that yeah, story oh, in the yeah. podcast? Okay. But the, and the other thing, Jack Houston is a perfectly fine actor. Uh, very, a very good and effective actor, but at the same time, he's a TV actor prim- primarily from Boardwalk Empire is what I, what I know him from. Okay. And See, I know I'm, him sure he, from... I'm sure he could be a very fine leading man. Okay. But at the same time, I feel like you do need something of a star to carry this movie. And he's got a lot of charisma. I'm not going to okay. say anything bad about Jack Houston. I think he's, he's quite good. And I know him cause I never watched Boardwalk Empire. Um, I know him, uh, I guess the first thing that leads to mind is that in that movie, kill your darlings, the one where Harry Potter played Allen Ginsberg. Yes. He played Jack Kerouac. Right. Um, <laughs> What? It's fun that you don't use his name. You said you just say Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm sure he appreciates that. Sure. And then this is coming from someone who's actually a big fan of him. Yeah. And I think he's a really, really talented actor. Yeah. But it's just fun to do. Did you see Harry was racist in this latest movie? You saw, movie? yeah, Harry yeah. Potter is an undercover neo-Nazi. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, sorry, you have you have another movie to get to. But it just, Yes. It well, just and I also like- wanted to say that David, Kim, David McKenzie movie, I couldn't think of it was yes it was released in the u.s as tonight you're mine its uk uh, original title was you instead okay when was that 2011 tonight your mind sounds vaguely familiar but i couldn't i can't place anything about it's it. it's a movie that takes it's like a uh romance it's also kind of like a Southside with you before sunset type of all okay. one night thing about a um uh two different musicians playing a festival in in uh, in england who meet and spend the day at the festival together and uh, have a little uh romance who's in it um the uh the male star is um is it luke treadaway or harry treadaway? got it they're, okay yeah i know okay. i always forget which one's which because they're brothers act brother actors luke, I, and luke I, I think it's okay luke. um i know the one you're talking about and uh it's a pretty corny movie but uh, david mckenzie is really 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 excels at um creating a like tangible sense of place is this the one where they wind up like handcuffed to each other or something? Yeah. Have you seen it? No, but okay. I, but I can picture it now. Yeah. And that, so yeah, you're pinpointing why I, it doesn't yeah, make sounds... the top tier of his movies. Yeah. Cause that's kind of dumb, but it does, uh, it I does doubt it's the stuff. defiant ones. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, so no, the other, uh, the other movie I saw is, uh, directed by Justin tipping and it's called kicks. Uh, and I think, um, this is a, uh, really solid little movie that I think, uh, um, definitely a lot of like high school kids are probably going to stumble upon this movie and, um, be inspired by Mm -hmm. it to pick up a camera. Um, because it's a, um, seemingly it's a small ish story about a, uh, kid who's not, he's he's a high school kid who's neither popular nor unpopular. And he's a, uh, a black kid living in, um, the Bay area. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess not, not San Francisco, but one of the, uh, Oakland or one of the cities, uh, uh, you know, around the Bay, um, in a pretty poor neighborhood. Um, and he's, uh, basically he buys like in an attempt to become a little more popular. He buys a, clearly stolen, uh, you know, out of a van buys a pair of classic, like throwback air Jordans. Uh, and it works for a very short time. Um, 
he actually these young people do start paying more attention to him. Girls are interested in him. Um, but within a day, um, he is um, beaten up and robbed uh, mm. of, and they steal his his shoes. And so he becomes singularly obsessed with getting his shoes back. He's this like, you know, he's a high school kid who even for his age is small um, and decided to go and take on essentially a, you know, a mid-level gangster yeah. um, just to get his shoes back. Uh, and so you see what I'm saying about being a mix of like low stakes and high stakes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's really uh, sharply drawn in terms of character and what it feels like to be that age. Um, it's also like beautifully shot. Like I think this is the thing that um, is going to, when I say that like young people are going to be attracted to this movie, like it clearly, it looks so distinct in terms of it has, it has you know, uh, it's not, you're expecting, I guess probably because of, the milieu of the movie, something a little more like verite or naturalistic or handheld or whatever, but it's a lot of like drifty, floaty, dreamy, like steady cam wide angle lenses. It's mm. movies in scope. Um, it's, uh, but the, the things you're looking at are still realistic, you know, everyday, um, things in this, in this, uh, rundown part of the city. Uh, but it's presented wide, widescreen and scope. And like, it's, it's really, uh, uh, really impressive to look at. I'd say that's the main thing about the movie uh, that that works. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't. I, I'm not going to go into too much detail because we, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. Uh, it's almost completely free of actors you have heard of. Okay. Um, the only one that I know you and I know, even though neither one of us knows quite how to pronounce his name, is it Mahershala Ali? Oh, yeah, is that yeah. his name? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, he plays. So this. Um, this kid's from a, you know, uh, a good family, but he has an uncle who is involved, who has been to prison and is involved in, uh, crime and drug dealing and stuff like that. And so when, when the kid's looking for the gangster who stuck, who stole his shoes, he goes to visit his uncle who, um, is kind of like a, uh, twisted, unreliable (laughs) Obi-Wan in a way. Hmm. Uh, and that's who Mahershala Ali plays in essentially two scenes in the whole movie, but, uh, he's quite good. Yeah. I, I like that he's getting more work. He was in free state of Jones, which is not that good of a movie, but he's very good in it. Um, okay. So I saw a movie that I watched on movie. We love those guys. They're pretty good. It is Don Hertzfeld's. It's such a beautiful day. Have you seen it? Have I seen that one? I don't know. It is a feature length. Oh, no, I haven't seen that one. Okay. Uh, it is absolutely marvelous. It's very touching and very funny. Okay. Um, and it's basically this this uh, main character who... It takes a while for you to realize exactly what uh, what's going on and that it's it's this guy who is who gets sick, essentially, and is possibly going to die. And so he kind of sees life in a different way, um, but it's it's there's such an absurdity to it, and the way and there's an element of, of stream of consciousness and just trying to put us inside this guy's mind, while still drawing him as just kind of a, a happy, cute little stick figure, essentially. And but what I like is that you know Don Hertzfeld, and I'm I'm. 
fairly familiar with his work. The two big things, you know, um, lately was it's such a beautiful day and world of tomorrow, which I haven't seen, but, um, you know, some would say that there's a simplicity to, um, his animation. And it's like, there can be, there's a, there's the air of simplicity because he's not over designing these characters or anything. But if you look at what he is doing and the fact that, Oh yeah, I guess, you know, what defines animation? Is it, you know, these brilliantly rendered CG or even just 2d, uh, Disney things, or is it, you know, going frame by frame and whether it be uh, a, giving the impression of motion or uh, of, a, of a drawn thing or um, all these other elements that you add to it that might be outside of the page that you're drawing on. There's a lot going on that hmm. it's, it's hard to even explain, but, but he, there's an experimental element, but the, there's a, a clear narrative going on, but it's also very absurd Um, It is very, very sad, but also very beautiful, and it is remarkably funny, um, you know, that in the midst of this, of this, this touching story about, you know, a guy coming to grips with his own mortality, that he's looking into, you know, his past, and he's looking uh, into, you know, the the, the generations that came before him and his family and just, and the sheer number of relatives that got hit by trains is <laughs> hilarious. And what will often happen is then it's like, it goes, and then he read about this one uncle who, you know, got dysentery and then was hit by a train. And it's very, very funny. And then Don Hertzfeld himself does, it's all, it's basically all narration. And, um, Don Hertzfeld does the narration himself and he clearly knows exactly. So, you know, it's written, it's not yeah. purely visual. Um, and as a narrator, like he knows exactly how to hit the punchlines and it's, and it's very, very funny. And, but it's just a really effective piece of work. I want to see that. Did you see the one last year? Um, I saw it. I can't remember the short film. I think world of tomorrow is the one that was, yes. was last year. No, I haven't. I think it's on Netflix, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. You should watch it. It's really good. And then of yeah. course I've also seen rejected. I've seen, that's yeah. I yeah. saw that many, many years ago. Yeah. And I uh, thought it was amazing. And then that's since the then like I've seen... That's kind of like pre-YouTube, like that's the kind of thing that got like passed around on like Absolutely. burned DVDs and VHS. Absolutely. And stuff like that. Yeah. That was one of those, uh, that was like an E-bombs world yeah. type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I got no problem with E-bombs world. I saw a lot of great stuff that way. Yeah. And for the longest time, it was the only place you could find one of my favorite SNL sketches of all time. Which is? It was from when Vince Vaughn hosted, of okay. all people. And it was a meeting of cat toy salesmen. <laughs> Have you ever seen this one? No, I haven't. It's, I think it's Vince Vaughn, Will Ferrell, and Tim Meadows. Okay. Maybe Chris Parnell's in it. Um, and they're like super like macho, like broing out, like um, salesmen who are all like, everything's like a dick measuring contest yeah. with them. Like, and like they're constantly making like gay jokes about one another. Yeah. Um, but then when they have a new product to test out, they <laughs> lay down on the ground and behave like cats <laughs> and like play with the toys. <laughs> it's the weirdest, uh, one of the weirdest and one of the funniest SNL sketches of all time. If you every, ask me every once in a while, there's just one of those sketches that like hits somebody and it stays with them for years. And if you try to explain to somebody else, the person's like, yeah, all right. That sounds fine. <laughs> what? <laughs> like there's, there's this one that I've posted on Facebook to no response. Uh-huh. Uh, 
Wait, is it the one that you and I loved, which is the, uh, I just wish you weren't a liar. (laughs) Okay. That's the one with Dodge Stratus, right? Yeah. You you mean your lame Dodge Stratus? (laughs) I am not. Yeah. Who's that? Uh, That's Will Ferrell, Anna Gasteyer, and Sarah Michelle Gellar? Sarah Michelle Gellar, yeah. Yeah. No, it's the one from, I think, the late 80s, and it's Phil Hartman as a robot. Have have you seen this? This isn't. And it's, and, and he's, it's so fascinating. It's he goes and it's him doing a, a robot voice saying like good afternoon, and he and he's holding and he's always holding a screwdriver and just like there's a really disciplined quality to his performance because his his movements are very specific and and the voice is very specific and it's it's a thing called robot repair uh-huh. and he goes he goes good afternoon and he says uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry he says. He goes, welcome to Robot Repair. In response to some of your letters, I should say that this is uh, uh, this is not a program where we repair robots. This is a program where a robot me uh, will repair various pro- uh, items around the house. I can understand your confusion. I have spoken to the producers. And then it cuts to the next one. And so the idea is there, these title cards keep coming up that are trying to alleviate the 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 issue that uh, people think it's going to be about repairing a robot <laughs> and he keeps saying i keep talking to the producer and then and then it just gets worse and worse and worse and i wish i could come up with some, some of them are just like this old robot and stuff uh-huh. like that and then one is robot repair and you he says you will notice that they added and you it seems to me that this does not fix the problem. <laughs> and, then, and then at one point he goes, uh, he says, it seems now that the producer is being intentionally deceptive. <laughs> and then the very last one, he just goes, warning, producer must be destroyed. <laughs> and just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Everything about it seems like a 1245 sketch yeah, that I best. love so much. Yeah. 10 to 1. Right, There's ten no, to one. Yeah, those are called the ten to one yeah. sketches. Those are always. But yeah, yeah. if you look for it, you can find it, and it's. Um, I, yeah. I love it so much. I, Man, I miss, Phil, Phil I miss Phil Hartman. Yeah, I I credit, um, unfrozen caveman lawyer as like one of the turning points of me developing my sense of humor, because sure. I distinctly remember my dad being like, "This is stupid. This is yeah. not funny," and me just thinking it was the funniest thing in the world. And you know what? I was right. Unfrozen caveman lawyer is brilliant, and it's funny because. There, I don't think as many. I don't think anyone could have made that work the way Phil Hartman did, which yeah. is just like with a certain degree, like all the ego and smarm of a <laughs> successful lawyer. <laughs> yeah. But then also, it's like, look, I don't understand your yeah. fire. It scares me. I'm a caveman. Uh, but one uh, thing I do know, yeah, always goes back to that. Okay, sorry, uh, we got to right. move on. So, uh, speaking of animation, um, I saw a movie called Kubo and the Two Strings. Did you see it? No, I kept I know, meaning yeah. to, but you were uh, fixing to see it. Yeah, I was fixing to. Um, it's quite good. Uh, I don't know what more to say yeah. about it than that. I feel like, um, to a certain extent, I feel like like animation has like it came out of the box so strong with Coraline and Paranorman. Yeah, that uh, I'm kind of like this is like. I would say this one's a little better better than Box Trolls, but like Box Trolls, I'm like I kind of wanted this to be genius and it's yeah. merely very good <laughs> yeah um or even merely great i thought box trolls was great yeah um but i thought Coraline especially and then paranorman i thought were better than great 
uh, yeah, those are those are both uh, incredible works. Um, but I do like that um, that this one kind of like Coraline and like parts of Paranorman, like it doesn't. Um, these are s- serious and dramatic in a lot of ways. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, not there's anything wrong with kids' movies being funny, but it doesn't like have. It's not like Secret Life of Pets, where there's even when it's like right. at the the uh, the climax and it's the most tense part of the movie. It's not dropping in comic relief. Right. Like it, it's a you know there's plenty of little jokes and like um, Matthew McConaughey's character Beetle is um, largely comic relief in a lot of ways, uh, but also ends up becoming a very touching character as well. Um, but like when it's time when the stakes are high in in like as movies, the stakes are high, and that's mm. uh, that's that's what it what it does. Um, anyway, um, it's uh, fantastic, you know. As you know, they're stop, a stop motion studio, um, and you get an incredible sense of design from those things. But also, it's amazing what they can do uh, with movement um, in in stop motion. Uh, all of their movies are so kinetic. Yeah, you know. Um, that it hurts me to think about how uh, painstaking that process must be. But Kubo, like there's uh, Kubo can, um, but he can play his guitar and sort of make objects come to life in a way. Like he can animate objects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at one point they need to go out on the ocean. They don't have a boat. And so he puts his guitar and a bunch of dead leaves come together and form a boat. That oh, have, that's great. They get on the ocean and, and this, it's, this boat is so awesome and cool looking. It's made of dead leaves. Uh, there's lots of cool stuff like that. I don't want to, uh, spend forever on it. Now, David, let me ask you this. This is off format, but I do have another animated movie here and we could keep the animation thing going. Uh, fine. That's fine. Cause I'm going to do something off format later. Too. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, no, not off format. I'm just going to do three in, in, in sure. time instead of two. Okay. So I, I watched sausage party. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, listeners were saying that I should see it. Um, uh, listeners of more than one lesson mm-hmm. um, because the the film uh, is very subtly about has like some some uh, religious satire in there. Um, I'm joking, of course. It's not subtle at all, oh, nor okay. is it smart. Um, <laughs> uh, to the point that uh, so last week I did a little mini sode about Sausage Party. Because and needed to be a minisode because an episode is too good for it. Um, <laughs> and then this this week, uh, my co-host Robert and I actually do a whole episode about religious satire and how to do it well. Um, or what are the good examples? Well, Life of Brian is the big Life one. Um, South Park does wonderful, um, and I'll be talking about South Park later because I was inspired by Sausage Party to seek out something better. Um, okay. And then he actually brought up uh, a lot of uh, Boonwell. Um, and the way he does uh, religious satire. Um, there's a movie that I love, which is officially a Christian film. It's called Believe Me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like religious satire should genuinely, it, same with all satire, it should make you sort of question not merely what you believe, but also how you believe it. Um, and Sausage Party, and I think satire, I might be, this might be reaching, but I, I feel like satire should also present even in the broad terms an alternative and the the ways that 
Sausage Party presents this stuff is remarkably half-baked. It First off, it completely misdiagnoses the problem. And then it presents a solution that is not really much of a solution. So its satire is not thought through, but also it's just not that funny. Mm. It's just like, hey, cartoon characters swearing. Uh. Come on, guys. I hate, I'm not going to pull this card from a political standpoint, but from an artistic standpoint, it's 2016. We've seen it, uh-huh. you know, uh, and there's, there's an element there. There's a scene at the end or a sequence at the end where like all the food like has a big orgy. And admittedly, I appreciate the audacity of that, but it's still just like, Hey, they're swearing and fucking right. Yay. Uh-huh. Isn't that funny? Well, maybe if you, if there are any uh, pot smokers in the in the listening audience, which I have to assume there are, I apologize. I'm not trying to insult you. I will be insulting Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen and the way that they smoke pot, uh, <laughs> which is, I'm sure this would be so much funnier. I'm sure this was very funny to them as they were really high and saying, hey, man, can you imagine if this hot dog was alive and swearing? Uh, and they just laughed and laughed uh, and then actually made a movie of that. And I don't know. It's just, uh, it's so half baked. Hey, um, <laughs> that works for a lot of reasons cause we're dealing with food as well. But, uh, it's just, uh, it, visually it's fine. It's some of the animators, you know, animators that have worked on, you know, better films in the past, okay. but it's just such a waste of time. And, you know, when you're looking at something like Kubo and the two strings, when you're looking at something like, you know, um, uh, it's such a, I want to make sure I get the title right. Cause I always get it mixed up with some other thing. It's such a beautiful day. I was going to say it's such a beautiful life, but that's life is beautiful. Um, you know, when you look at that and visually what it can be, but also thematically and structurally what these things can be, as opposed to sausage party, sausage party is so damn lazy and dumb. And, but what's worse is it thinks it's so smart and you know, if somebody has a problem with religion, that's fine. I'll listen to you. But if you, the last thing I want is, uh, like the mentality of a teenager who really thinks he's blowing my mind. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly. What you mean. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's a big turnoff to me. Yeah. It makes dogma look really, <laughs> really nuanced. All right. Um, and then my second one of my, uh, uh, back to back that you, uh, interrupted. Sorry. Uh, is, um, a movie by a director whose uh, last name I don't know how to pronounce. Okay. Uh, Derek Sianfrance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, he made uh, Blue Valentine, mm-hmm. and he made uh, the um, staggeringly brilliant uh, The Place Beyond the Pines. Yeah. Uh, and so I was very excited for his new new movie, um, The Light Between Oceans, which, com- which comes out this weekend. And it's, yeah, it's not The Place Beyond the Pines, but uh, I was not disappointed. It's... Okay. Um, a really lovely um, and and heartfelt movie, and it's um, it, it's a movie that is about. I guess I'm going to repeat things that I know we've said on this podcast before, but you and I have you know certain points of view, and they tend to come up a lot. Um, but I, for the longest time, I only heard the word melodrama used as a um like a, a derogative or yeah, whatever pejorative a pejorative yeah that's what i was looking for um and um i've 
only come, you know, eventually, not, I was going to say only recently, but it's been like a decade or more that I've come to realize that uh, melodrama can be great. Mm. Um, and um, The Light Between Oceans, as the uh, very grandiose title might suggest, is a movie of big, big emotions. Yeah. Um, but all all that has to do, he makes it seem so simple and down to earth, the way he just, he just doesn't, be, never betrays the on, the, the the truth of the characters um, and who they are and how they react and what they feel and what they believe. Uh, and so all of it is um, very, uh, it, it never feels disingenuous. You know, I think that's um, when people use melodrama as a, as you say, pejorative, uh, which is the right term that I couldn't find um, for um, they're reacting to, I think a certain disingenuous or, or even cynicism. Um, and that's not what good melodrama is. So if you don't know, uh, the story of the light between oceans, um, Michael Fassbender plays, it takes place. I don't think the movie ever says this, but it was shot in New Zealand. And I think the novel takes place in New Zealand, okay. but all the actors are British. Um, or I guess Irish and, and Michael Fassbender is Irish or is he British? I think he's Irish, but okay. I might be wrong. Um, um, yeah, sorry. I don't know that. Um, Anyway, uh, so it takes place in New Zealand, I think. <laughs> um, and Michael Fassbender plays, it's just after the First World War, and he is a uh, veteran who is clearly, there's some hints of maybe post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. in, or I guess at that time they called it shell shock. Um, and so he takes a job being the caretaker of a lighthouse um, on an island off a small town, which means he takes it at a, uh, for six months, he's going to be essentially living alone on this. It's just a house that they have for the lighthouse and the lighthouse itself. Mm-hmm. And there's a town, but it's a boat ride, you know, away. He doesn't, he's basically going to be alone for six months, but he sort of gets to know the town people, townspeople, they get to like him and he sort of falls for the daughter of, um, one of the, uh, prominent families in this town, um, played by Alicia Vikander. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they end up falling in love and they get married and then she, and so he takes the job permanently as opposed to the six months and she moves onto the island with him. Um, and they, um, want to have a child, but she, um, keeps miscarrying. Um, and then, uh, after about three or four days after her second miscarriage at this point, because of the distance between them and the, you know, people, uh, in the town, no one knows that she has miscarried. Um, a boat washes up on the beach with a dead man and a baby in it. Mm-hmm. And so um, they talk about it and argue about it, but they decide to give the man a burial and raise the baby uh, as their own. Um, and uh, I feel like I just gave a lot of plot away, but that's not like right. it. <laughs> that's, that's really just where things uh, kick off. Um, uh, because maybe you noticed there's a dead man in the boat. There's not a dead woman, which implies there's still a mother of this child out there somewhere. Uh, and that very much becomes a, uh, a big part of the, mm-hmm. the movie going forward. I don't want to say much more. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, really, uh, I don't know. I, I still haven't finished writing my review, which I should have. Um, uh, because the movie goes up. So I, I'm not, uh, I haven't gotten all my thoughts in order on the movie, but, uh, I'm 
really happy with uh, with Derek Sianfranz and and how it turned out, uh, and not just because he also cast uh, my personal favorite actress of all time, Rachel Weisz, oh. uh, <laughs> in another role as one of the townspeople. Um, so uh, that's the Life of Two Notions. I definitely recommend uh, checking it out. And it also it feels like. Maybe this is just me as a guy who is increasingly disenchanted by the summer movie season. Maybe this is just wishful thinking, but it feels like with, with the light between oceans coming out this weekend, the fall movie season has started. Like doesn't light between oceans feel like the first, like, Oh, it's a, you know, a, it's Derek C. on France, Michael Fassbender, Alicia Vikander, Rachel Weiss. It's a period romance costume drama thing like it, this feels like a fall movie is it a big movie like yeah. is it is it being released like nationwide all the, or is it a limited release um it's i mean it's being released by touchstone it's not a okay. it, it's being released by a major st- which is essentially disney okay um it's two hours and 15 minutes uh it's yeah yeah it, it feels like it feels like the beginning of the fall movie but season. you know why why it's actually the beginning of the fall movie season Oh, because it's September? It is now September. <laughs> we are it's, recording on September 1st. Happy first day of fall day. Yeah, it's too fucking hot to be fall. <laughs> That's outside. true. Can't argue with that. Um, okay, uh, so since I uh, absconded with uh, the the episode here, uh, you can you can take another one if you want. Why don't I do a couple more? Okay. Um, I saw uh, this one also kind of feels like a fall movie, but in a bad way okay. in that it's... Um, uh, it's a, uh, it is the manipulative emotional thing. It's a, uh, I guess, I guess the movie is French or maybe I think the movie is French, but, uh, it's called come what may. Um, and it's a world war two drama. Um, like most movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, I say that I, I, that I can't remember if it's French or not because the, the cast is diverse. Basically, um, the actor, the German actor, August Diehl, whom you will know, you will recognize if you saw his face, you'd recognize him as the uh, drunken captain or major or whatever in the um, uh, basement pub scene in, in Glorious Bastards. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that guy with a very sort of angular face. Mm-hmm. Um, he plays a German, but he's part of the opposition during uh, uh, in the early days of World War II. Um, and this is, or this is 1939, 1940. Um, and so he and his, he's a, uh, his, his wife has, has died. Uh, he has a young son. And so he and his son, um, the authorities are under them. So they, uh, escape in the dead of night into France, pretend to be French. They both speak French, um, and, uh, get, um, jobs, um, in this small French town working, uh, working, you know, helping out as farmhands or whatever. Um, the nice people in this French town eventually discover who they are, but decide to keep them safe, uh, anyway. But then, um, when the, uh, French, I guess the French authorities find out, they arrest him and throw him in jail. Mm -hmm. Um, but the son still stays with the school teachers living with the school teacher. And then when the Germans are invading France, um, this town, this small town has, um, a contingency plan, which is that they're all supposed to go further South where the French, where the German has Germans haven't come yet, uh, and stay with people in another town. So basically, um, this entire town picks up stakes and sets out like two weeks down the road, including with the young boy, 
and then when the Germans come, um, the 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 French basically just say "fuck it" and let all the prisoners go. Mm-hmm. So the German guy is let go, but he's not with his son. So he is setting off alone across what is now territory occupied by the Germans to reconnect with his son. Uh, and then he um, meets up with a British soldier who's become separated from mm-hmm. his um, from his outfit, played by uh, Matthew Reese um, from the Americans. Um, okay, well, he's a really good actor, uh, okay. and he's on the Americans. He plays a Russian pretending to be an American on the Americans, but here okay. he's a Welshman pretending to be a Scotman. Oh. Scotsman. Oh, boy. Um, no, he's, he's a Welshman in real life. He's playing a Scotsman. Um, and so... Yeah, uh, basically, August Deal is mostly about August Deal and Matthew Reese um, making their way through occupied France to try and connect with Matthew Reese's uh, young son, and then we also keep track of the townspeople as they as they travel. Um, and so it's I mean it's an engaging story, but uh, everything is just such broad strokes uh, all the time. You, you know, the, yeah. Um, you know, there's not really much. The movie weirdly like in an early ish scene kind of interestingly flirts with the idea of really, uh, humanizing the German soldiers uh, as well. The first couple of German soldiers that they have to kill to get away from, it's kind of sad because these are, you just realize these are like yeah. young men, uh, doing what they're told. And it's, um, kind of a kind of tragic, but then it's like, all right, we got that out of the way from here on out. The Germans are just monsters. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, all the townspeople are broad stereotypes. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's just very, um, it just seems like a real crowd pleasing type. It's the bad kind of fall movie. Well, and the, na- the nature of that story of, you know, I'm going to say the name of the movie yet. Come with me. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the nature of the story is such that like, Oh, I'm going to, go through, you know, a war-torn thing, uh, a war-torn country, which means you're going to see the ravages of war on soldiers, on, you know, uh, civilians and that sort of thing on your way to uh, a goal. But you can't, but the goal needs to be like, it has to be something that does drive you forward. So it's like, all right, what can that be? Uh, Okay, going to go, is he going to go home to see his family? Well, he could probably just get some kind of transport. No, I know what we can do. We'll do Uh this. We'll have his young son Nemo go missing, and then he uh, brings this uh, British guy named Dory, and then they go uh, traversing <laughs> yeah. through the ocean. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the one thing that is interesting about it is that apparently this thing of like a lot of these small French towns picking up just en masse and leaving. This yeah. really happened. The movie opens with some like actual footage shot of the, at the time of just entire yeah. t- villages worth of people um, just making their way. Uh, down the road uh, into the south of France. Um, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. But I'd rather watch a documentary about that. Yeah, there's always interesting <laughs> stuff. Like, that's it's one of the things that got me about Anthropoid is, like, when it first started, part of... And it sounds so terrible to say it, but part of me is like, it's another World War II movie. You yeah. know? And... Yeah, there are a lot of them. I get, And my thing is, okay, what are you bringing that hasn't been brought in, as they say. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, last year I was skeptical going into son of Saul. And I know there are some people who hate that movie and some people like me really? who found it. Yeah. Um, uh, but I found it, uh, incredibly powerful. And part of it is that it did find a different way to approach it. Yeah. Like 
that's the thing. If you just, because if you don't find a new way to, the way I see it, if you don't find a new way to approach it at this point, I feel like you're just being exploitative. Uh Um, even if, even if in tone you're not, I feel like just the fact that you're choosing to do this and maybe you're doing it to kind of work something out for yourself. But I feel like even if that's true, I feel like, I feel like there will, there will be a novelty to what you're doing if you're, even if you're trying to work it out for yourself. But, and again, that's why I liked Anthropoid is because it, it went at it from a different angle and one that also happened to be true, which was nice. Okay. Uh, let me do one more. Okay. Um, I saw a film I'd wanted to see for a long time because I like the director, Louis Mal, and I also really like the title of this movie. It's called Elevator to the Gallows. Ah. Um, and it's uh, it's terrific. It's a it's a crime movie. By the end, it's very at both the beginning and the end. It's very clearly a crime movie. But a lot of the middle por- portion of it doesn't really have anything to do with crime at all. Um, it starts out a um, a man who uh, works at a company. I, I can't remember if it says what the company does. It's completely not important. Uh, he's having an affair with his boss's wife, um, and he murders his boss. Um, uh, intending to, I guess, in, like abscond with some money and then run away mm. with his boss's wife. So it open like it opens with him murdering his boss. Um, then he goes down to his car that is waiting. He starts the car and he realizes he's left some evidence behind. Uh, and so he quickly runs back into the building to go up and collect the evidence. And then the power goes out in the building and he's trapped in the elevator. His car's running outside, and so the girl who works at the florist, um, when her boyfriend, who's kind of a little rapscallion, yeah. uh, do well. punk, uh, delinquent. Yeah. When he shows up, he decides, Hey, let's steal this car and go on a joy ride. And then there's the, um, the wife of the murdered guy, the, uh, the, uh, the murderers, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Paramore, um, oh, nice. played by John Moreau, Jean Moreau, um, who's, she doesn't know what's going on. She just knows that this guy hasn't shown up um, when he was supposed to, to take her away. And so the movie essentially becomes three strings. One, yeah. a guy trapped in an elevator all night Two, this young couple joyriding through the countryside. <laughs> like they leave Paris and drive around in the countryside. Um, and then three, Jean Moreau just sort of wandering the city all night, like looking, checking in on this guy's friends and trying to find out what happened to the guy. Uh, that's pretty much the whole, what the movie is about. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's terrific. I had no idea that it was that complex. I had heard about it obviously, but, uh, but I still, I, I still haven't seen it. It sounds marvelous. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, we can't spend too long. It's a, it's a great movie. Everyone's heard of it. So I watched Stephen Freer's Florence Foster Jenkins. Um, Oh, I forgot that came out. Yeah. Cause I'm interested in seeing it. Yeah. Cause it's, cause, uh, that, movie that you saw marguerite, marguerite yeah is based uh, on the same like story that. um although i think they changed the well, what year does florence foster jenkins or what year ish um 44 okay yeah because they moved marguerite is a it's in paris not in yeah. new york and b it's in the 20s okay. uh, or teens and tens and 20s it's it's a it's a very very good movie and it's i wouldn't say it's great and in many ways it kind of just falls into some traps that you would think um, where certain characters are sort of caricatures, but at this, where it, where it needs to work, it does, which is to say the character of Florence and then her husband played by Hugh Grant. 
Now, we know what to expect from Meryl Streep at this point, and I say that in the best possible way. Like, we know that she's going to commit to this character 100%. She's not going to wink at us. She's not going to condemn this character as stupid. Um, and she's and she's written in a way that is that is very sympathetic, but there's an element of, like, you're frustrated. Like, how can a woman who is, who is intelligent and sensitive and has an appreciation for music... How can she not recognize how terrible she is? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I do appreciate when the film goes out of its way to show us uh, good things about her, but then also doesn't pull its punches when she starts singing. Um, but I think, but the real, I think the real story is the Hugh Grant character because what prompts him to shelter her from this? Mm-hmm. You know, one could say that if you really love somebody you're honest with them. You know, if I, if Jen were a terrible photographer, I would, as much as I love her, I'd probably try to steer away from doing it professionally. Um, (laughs) but, and even in this case, it's, you know, she wants to perform in front of a bunch of people and it's like, well, now she's going to be embarrassed, not merely unsuccessful, but embarrassed. And so he's trying to shield her and in doing so making some, some, very stressful, but also just some, maybe some bad decisions. Uh, but what I like is that, yes, we see that he is a loving doting husband, but he is also not a perfect husband. He has a mistress. Mm -hmm. Um, and you would think that, okay, he has a mistress and he, and that you see like a real lustful passion come about when he's with her that you don't really see with Florence. And so that's the thing. The movie would say, well, he clearly doesn't really love Florence. She's just obligation to him and his heart is really with his girlfriend. Um, but that's not the case. He actually, he clearly has a love and affection for his wife, but then he also has this thing going with, uh, with his mistress. And so that character is actually remarkably complex. And Hugh Grant, who I've, I've often thought is an underrated actor. Um, he plays him very, very well. And, you know, so much of this movie could have been, simple and easy and still would have been fairly successful. But the fact that they choose to, you know, uh, layer on elements of unlikability in certain characters and sympathy in other characters, I think is, is a a good call. So let me ask you this, um, because a lot of the buzz around this movie is about how good Hugh Grant is. Mm -hmm. We talked about how with uh, the light between oceans, we're officially in the fall movie season. Yeah. Uh, is there going to be awards talk you think for Hugh Grant? I don't know um, if they if okay so uh, I'm I'm glad you brought it up because it gives me the opportunity to start thinking in these terms again. Uh-huh. Um, I've been thinking the these f- terms for months, but the yeah. fact that it came out in August uh, means that it's not officially being thought of um, as as a potential Oscar movie. So I think the studio put it out there early to kind of see what the buzz would be mm-hmm. so that if it's, if the buzz isn't that great, it's like, all right, we don't need to launch a campaign. It's fine. Um, but there's enough buzz. There's always buzz for Meryl Streep. Always. Mm-hmm. It's a period film. It's a Stephen Frears film. Um, but everyone's talking about Hugh Grant as, which is understandable. So I could see there being what, what I think could happen is that though he is the lead, I could see them nominating him for supporting and, and launching a campaign for that with her as lead and, and him as supporting, which I don't think holds up, but the 
Academy doesn't care about that. Wherever they think they can get the nomination. And Hugh Grant... Well, it's not the Academy doesn't care. It's the studio. The studio, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they also know how the Academy thinks. Right. And, you know, Hugh Grant could get lost in a sea of lead actors. But in supporting actors, this guy who's been, who's been around for, at this point, about you know, 25, 30 years... Um, and we've seen him grow old gracefully. We see him in a part like this, you know, very much Jim Broadbent in Iris, uh, very much Jennifer Connelly in uh, uh, Beautiful Mind, uh, both the same year, oddly enough. So those both won supporting Oscars. Like if you take a lead played by a respectable actor and it's and the and the character is a sort of caregiver, boom, there you go. You've got your nomination. So they they might do that. And and. From an art direction, costume design standpoint, uh, maybe even music and sound design, there's they can launch a campaign in that. I think this is a potential Oscar contender and awards contender in general. I don't know if it'll win anything, okay. but I could see, I could definitely see them them putting it out there in that way. It's a it's a it's a good movie and it's worth it's worth watching definitely. Uh, all right, I um, on the one hand, I'm one of those people who doesn't actually care about the awards and who wins them. And yet I do get so excited about like award season for yeah. some reason. I, I know I, I say for some reason, I know why it's because a lot of people are taking movies seriously yeah. <laughs> and I, I find that exciting. Yeah. Um, uh, even though I don't actually care or remember two weeks later who won any Oscars or yeah. anything like that. Um, are you excited for the draft? Our personal Oscar uh, or awards fan- fantasy yeah. awards draft. Yes, I'm very very excited, but the listeners don't care. David, <laughs> I think it's been well established <laughs> that my finger is firmly on the pulse oh, of what listeners care this. about. Okay, go on. Um, okay, this movie. Oh boy, let me okay, tell you. all right, it's I'm, so good. I'm preparing myself. Um, this is what, easily one of my favorite movies I've seen this year. Um, are you familiar with the filmmaker Pablo Lorraine? Uh, no. Chilean filmmaker. A couple of years ago, he made a movie called No, starring Gil oh, yeah, Garcia okay, Bernal. Yeah, yeah. Um, he also um, made uh, The Club, which I'm looking at the DVD over there, um, which neither of us has watched, but we have the DVD there. Um, he made uh, Postmortem, which is a really good movie. Um, uh, Tony, Man- Tony Manero he made. Anyway, he's got a new movie out. Um, it doesn't actually come out here until December, but it's playing at, um, the Toronto film festival and it played at Cannes. Um, and it's called Neruda. It's about the poet Pablo Neruda. Now here, I'm a big fan of Pablo, uh, Lorraine. Um, I'm generally not a big fan of biopics. Um, <laughs> and so I was a little nervous, uh, and I shouldn't have been yeah, because this is one of those biopics. that's not really a biopic because it, um, a, it takes a small part of the poor person's life. Um, and also, it's not really actually about the person. So uh, this concerns the time um, in the 1940s when Pablo Neruda, who is a, a major poet, poet uh, even, you know, not one, not one of those, like, um, discovered after his time uh, poets, but a major poet as uh, a living and working poet, um, and also eventually a senator um, and a communist who then, you know, things, uh, things change. There are some shifts in the Chilean, uh, government. Um, the movie makes pretty much, uh, explicitly clear are because of, um, U S and CIA influence. Mm -hmm. Um, and the communists are, um, outlaws 
And so Pablo Neruda becomes a fugitive and is being, because he's uh, famous, he has a lot of supporters and he's being hidden across the country and they're, and they're trying to ferry him out of the country. Yeah. Um, and Gael Garcia Bernal plays the head inspector in charge of tracking him down. And so it's kind of like a heat type of like cat and mouse uh, movie, which um, is uh, already, already there's an interesting twist on the biopic formula, yeah. but uh, then it becomes not even really about that at all and becomes a lot more um, esoteric and metatextual and about this idea that Neruda is a creative person. He creates scenarios and um, there's a falseness to him and the movie generally, then there's an artificiality to the way he presents himself. And the movie takes that on about its whole story and starts to make you question if maybe the whole idea of the government tracking down Pablo Neruda is a play there. Like it's all performative. Hmm. Like it benefits um, Neruda to be seen as this fugitive and it benefits the government to have him in hiding as opposed to being martyred and being an actual or, or being a prisoner, yeah. you know, where people can see him. And so um, it sort of turns Neruda uh, or, or or suggests the idea that Neruda and um, I can't remember Gail Garcia Bernal's name. It's like a four syllable last name. Um, uh, it's Oscar Pelicheneau. So Neruda and Pelicheneau are sort of become pawns. Um, and then the movie goes even further to almost explicitly suggest that Pelicheneau didn't physically exist before this situation situation arose that needed him to. And so it, uh, it the movie becomes so much grander yeah. um, and, and more uh, esoteric, I guess is what I already used um, than how it, than, than what it started as. Uh, and it's beautiful and heartbreaking and, uh, and moving. And of course you get, um, he's nervous fleeing across the entirety of Chile. And so you get lots of beautiful shots about, of how varied a country Chile is because Chile is not just, you know, Santiago in the North. It's also Patagonia and the, you know, the icy snow covered mm-hmm. South of the country. And that's where the climax takes, uh, the movie takes place. Um, it's a it's a beautiful movie and it's um yeah it's the first movie i've seen the uh, first new movie i've seen in a while that as soon as it's over it was like when am i going to get a chance to see that again yeah. <laughs> like like i said it's not coming out till december so um i can't wait until it's actually i'm not going to tiff um that's toronto international film oh Festival. got it yeah yeah um so um, I'm hoping that when it comes out in September, I'll get a chance to check it out again because it, it's fantastic. You know, it's interesting to go back to what you're saying about being uh, just sort of have a, having a natural reaction to biopics. And I, I'm the same way. Um, but it sounds like what this is doing is it's in its own way. It's exploring not necessarily biopics, but the natural instinct to make them and watch them uh-huh. because it understands like, oh, yeah, we've got there are these figures that we like and we respect and that we want to know more about. And this is a film that says, yes, there is that. And we can use that. We can absolutely, you know, we, the government can absolutely use that. Um, 
And uh, in fact, we can even uh, fill in some other elements that will make this more dynamic because uh, this guy needs to be pursued by a Javert type. Uh-huh. So uh, let's just do that. Um, and so it's it definitely uh, explores like the idea of the role of, of creating a, uh, a certain myth in the midst yeah. of, a, of a biopic. And it wouldn't, uh, I, I, t- I often forget to talk about actors. Um, I have something that I've They're just cattle. kicked myself. Yeah. Um, but both the uh, Nerda is played by, um, uh, an actor who I wasn't familiar with named Luis Neco. Um, and of course, Pilichino is Gal Garcia Bernal, as I mentioned, and they're both terrific. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let me mention one more. I will from a, a legitimately great movie to a legitimately dreadful uh, movie. Uh, I watched the Shout Factories, or I should say Scream Factory, um, Blu-ray release of the 1973 fe- feature, The Boy Who Cried Werewolf. <laughs> and it is just dreadful. Um, I'm not even going to go into too much uh, detail, um, except to say that it is um, completely laughable, um, to the point where I could see this being a fun movie to watch with friends. Okay. And like... Um, cause it's, uh, it's so bad. Uh, and the main, you know, bless his heart, but the main kid, the boy in question is terrible. <laughs> like he's the only one who realizes that the werewolf, a, that the monster that's killing people is a werewolf, not a wild animal and B that it's his dad and not some wild animal. And so every other line of his is, is like him. It's my dad. Like just oh constantly like whining and crying. And there's like, obvious fake tear like this kid is not obviously couldn't cry in command they put some like just really obvious just like lines of like yeah. fake tears down his face for every scene um terrible and then <laughs> insult to injury and this i don't blame the movie for i blame either universal or shout factory whoever uh, oversaw this but whenever the the transfer was done they clearly didn't have the time money or inclination to uh they must i guess they scanned like the original negative or something because the color timing wasn't done and they didn't go in and time the day for night sequences to be night oh wow so it's it's i was mad like i was like come on like obviously this movie's terrible but the director doesn't deserve this like he intended these to be timed down to look more like night um but it's ridiculous how often like the (laughs) The, the man is transforming into a werewolf at like high noon. <laughs> and then there's another part where like the kids like on the run, uh, you know, he gets separated from his dad after his dad turns into a werewolf. Cause apparently they keep going up to their cabin, this dad and son. Apparently they go once a month only when it's the full moon <laughs> the time they go up to the cabin. Uh, but he's on the way on the run and he, uh, meets this young couple who were camping in like an mm-hmm. RV type thing. Um, and he's like, uh, let me in. And so they're like, and so the wife's like, you got to go help this kid find his dad. And the, and the, and the husband's like, but it's the middle of the night. <laughs> it's like clearly not um, sweat pouring down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, uh, as always, I'm inclined to blame the studio because I think shout factory has shown a commitment to putting out the best stuff they can, uh, putting out stuff as but best I mean, they can. I mean, I have to imagine they QC'd this and, yeah. Like said, like, this is, uh, we don't, I don't know. We don't have, you know, the money to go back and, um, and, and, and time this 
correctly and so they just put it out anyway so i'm kind of mad at everybody i think an argument could have been made that just like well you wait until you can do it you you wait to release until you can fix this yeah um yeah well david look at this look at this my next movie is the 1935 Stuart Walker film, Werewolf of London. How about that? Isn't that fun? What a coincidence. Um, yeah, it's, it, I don't have much to say. It's a perfectly fine movie. Uh, it predates The Wolfman by six years, but it was made in the midst of you know Frankenstein and Dracula, and this was clearly meant to be like their next thing. But, you know, one... I'm going to wind up talking more about the Wolfman than werewolf of London here because, uh, I recorded an episode of more than one lesson. That's not going to go up until October. And I'm talking about werewolf movies and something that we, okay. So what are the big rules of werewolves? Okay. Um, the big, big rules are if you get bit by a werewolf, you become a werewolf, right? Uh, you change, uh, during the full moon, right? And it takes, uh, silver, to kill you? Yes. Okay. Uh, that's three rules. That's good enough, right? That's good enough. And I'm pretty sure all of them came about from the Wolfman. Like, they seem like they should be, like, they're hundreds of years old. No. Uh-huh. They came about from Kurt Siodmak in 1941 writing the Wolfman. And that's the thing is, I think, I think he probably looked at the rules for vampires and he said, well, this werewolf stuff doesn't have anything. And so he came up with, like, full moon, silver... Uh, and, and if you get bitten by one, you become one, not unlike a vampire. Mm-hmm. And, and then I think the general association with like gypsies and that sort of thing, I think that might've existed already, but all that is to say that the absence of that is why werewolf of London doesn't work that well. Um, the story is perfectly fine. The atmosphere is nice. The acting is fine. The makeup, it's the same guy that did the makeup for the wolf man and, the guy that did the makeup for all of those monsters, but it's not nearly as in depth as the Wolfman because the studio said, no, no, we want to be able to see the actor's face even mm-hmm. as he's the werewolf. Um, so he looks more like uh, count Chocula. I know that sounds weird, but just, that's the only thing I can, okay. th- that's yeah, the only that thing I weird. can use to describe him. Um, but, th- and that's the thing is, so it's like, okay, we have a guy who's transforming into this thing and he's, fairly sentient and everybody knows it's him. Uh, and so it actually owes a lot more to like Jekyll and Hyde than any kind of werewolf, uh, Hmm. lore. But, um, but it's, it's a, it's a perfectly fine movie in, in the, you know, in the larger story of werewolf movies in Hollywood, it's interesting to see where it started and then see just how big of a role, the Wolfman played in everything that came after. Um, but yeah, so werewolf of London, I was, I was happy. I saw it if for no other reason than uh, academically. All right. Um, keeping up, keeping the horror, horror train going. Okay. A couple of horror movies. I saw Fede Alvarez's don't breathe as did I. Uh, okay, good. Um, I saw it yesterday. Um, I, uh, appreciate it. Okay. I don't know that I think it's that great. I feel like it's, I, I appreciate it's, um, the, it's clockwork nature and the amount of 88 minutes. I like that, <laughs> but not just that, like the amount of like pre-planning that went into like, um, I mean, certain things are in a macro, uh, sense contrived, but mm-hmm. everything within the movie works, you know, yeah. 
the layout of the house, where each prop, which each object is at any given time or each dead yeah. body or whatever, whatever, like, you know, uh, Fede Alvarez and the screenwriter or screenwriters, like, um, they account for every one of their cool ideas. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, I really appreciate that. And I think it adds to the, um, the tangibility and the verisimilitude or whatever of the actual, um, situation to know, like, uh, the movie's not really cheating. Yeah. Um, although, yeah, there is one, my wife and I were talking about it afterwards. Like when did the power come back on? Cause it does, but we don't see the, the, uh, switch get flipped. We see the power get turned off. Right. And then a little bit, the power's back on and we don't really see it happen. That's the only thing that we couldn't like really explain. Like how did that anyway? Um, other than that, um, I really appreciated that. But when I compare it to a movie like your next, mm-hmm. uh, is one that, one that, um, leaps to mind. Um, and there was another one I like had made a mental note, like, Oh, talk about this movie. Uh, but now I can't remember what it was. Um, it feels, Oh, uh, green room is another one yeah. that, um, it feels like it's just the surface version of those movies. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like your next and green room both have, um, better, uh, better drawn characters and mm-hmm. your next especially also has a sort of meta sense of like it's history and the home invasion genre yeah. and like playing with your expectations here. Um, and, Whereas Don't Breathe is a basically is it's a it's a really well executed but not particularly deep um, entry in the subgenre of home invasion horror. And some and at at a point it gets to there there are just certain things that turn me off. It's like again, your next found a way to be brutal and it's sometimes sadistic without losing its sense of fun. Yeah. Whereas I won't give it away. You know, I won't give it away to listener listeners, but there are twists, fairly large twists in yeah. don't breathe that make it stop being fun. And it just gets like, um, it gets, it gets too upsetting for the tone of the movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you're going to go here where the movie goes, then you're going to have to account for it and earn it. And I don't think yeah. it does. I I'm, I'm not sure if I'd say it fully earns it, but I'm, you know, the degree to which the film has any depth um, philosophically is, you know, the blind man does not say much. Yeah. But he does espouse a philosophy, specifically a religious one. Yeah. Um, And the thing that I found, which is, you know, I believe this is actually, this line is being used in publicity. So I'm not spoiling anything, um, which is something to the effect. Like he talks about how he doesn't believe in God and that mm-hmm. like, and I don't remember the specific line. Maybe you can help out something like, you know, you'd be amazed what you are capable of, you know, once it, you, it's something like there's nothing a man can't do once he, that's yeah. um, realizes there's God no doesn't God. exist. Or yeah. Doesn't God. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, okay, so this is, so he's living completely by his own sense of morality, a subject, a subjective morality. Um, and, and for him, it's that like, well, so, and I'll, I'll be as vague as I can. Um, something was taken from me 
And so, and that was not right. And there's no cosmic justice because there's no God. So there's the only justice that we make, but also uh, there's, and in this world, the thing that was taken from me was taken from me by a rich person and there's no justice for the rich in this world. So I'm going to have to make my own justice in my own way. And then you actually find his moral compass. It seems weird to put it that way. Asserting itself when he somehow says, and I, I'll, I'm not this. Yeah. He's still absolutely that. <laughs> yes, but exactly. Be, but because yeah, he technically yeah. is not he doing this, yeah, because he's not technically doing this one thing in his own mind, he's saying, you know, he, he has the one thing that he can point to and say, well, at least I'm not that. Yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> even though he absolutely is, there's no question about it. And so, I do think, you know, I, obviously there's more than one lesson in there, um, but October's all booked up. It's going to have to wait till next year. Um, um, but that's the thing. Oh. That's, that's, the, that's the depth that I can find in there. It's not that deep, though, you know. Um, um, I'll say one more thing before we move on. Okay. Um, that I like. I like about the movie, but again, there's a movie that does it. It's a horror movie that does it better. Um, you know that... Um, all uh, logic and reason aside, I'm a big fan of Eli Roth's Hostel. Yeah, you are. Um, and that is a movie that sets up a group of characters where you're like, okay, clearly this is our guy and the other guys are the ones who get killed, yes. right? And this movie kind of does a version of that, of introducing one of the uh, thieves or you know the robbers, the burglars, yeah. as the sympathetic main character. And then over the course of the movie, our main character becomes a different character. Yeah. Um, not It doesn't do it quite to the extent that Hostel does, which yeah. is in a very knowing and I think satisfyingly knowing way. Well, and this one is, there's three of them. One of them is going to die. <laughs> right, yes. I mean, and you know from the trailer, but... Uh, uh, that's true. Yeah, don't, also, don't watch the trailer. Yeah. Yeah, not just because of that. Um, yeah, cause that happens her. fairly early on, but there is another, one of those major twists that I mentioned yeah. is given away in the trailer, which I, I don't understand. Yeah. It's you crazy know, to me. And just, uh, but, and, and the big thing that I will say, and this is a function of Stephen Lang and this is a function of the writer director. Um, they do not give the blind man some kind of preternatural ability. That's a great point. And I noticed that and I liked that, that, He's like, like Daredevil. That's exactly, yeah. Uh, I saw the movie with Jason last night. That's the first thing I said. I'm glad he's not Daredevil. There comes a moment when, you know, he turns out the lights. So now everyone's in darkness. Yeah. But just because they can't see doesn't mean now he's super confident. He still can't see. Right. And he still needs to reach out his hand to feel things. But he knows the way out of the thing. Of the There's a better. wonderful moment when he's walking in the touches cellar. Touches the rafter. And he touches the rafter. And it's just like... Because he needs those. Yeah. He still needs those. Yeah. He has the house memorized. And it also makes sense that like, yeah, of course you wouldn't move away. Everyone, uh, for a number of reasons that uh, that's part of the twist, but it's just like, yeah, what's he going to do? He doesn't have any family Mm -hmm. to help him figure out a new place. This is where he's going to live. And I don't know. There's, I think it's a very effective movie. I think I liked it more than you did, but there are things that are, it's an overused term that are potentially problematic. But if I look at them through the lens of the themes that the film might be exploring, I don't know if they actually, if it actually is. Um, if I look at it through that lens, it makes it a little bit more acceptable and a little less problematic, but certainly stylistically, I, I appreciate it as you said. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, and then another horror slash sci-fi movie I watched um, for the first time. I'd never seen this version before. I watched Philip Kaufman's 1978 film, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I'd only ever seen the Don Siegel uh, 1956 one with Kevin McCarthy, right? And I haven't seen that one. Um, oh, really? Uh, that one's great. Yeah. And, and is heavily referenced in this one, including Kevin McCarthy making a cameo, yeah. repeating some of his exact same lines from yeah. the 1956 version. Um, but this is, um, you got a terrific, uh, four, four poster of a cast here yeah. with, um, Donald Sutherland, um, Veronica Cartwright, um, Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. And then I say that those are the four big names, but the co-lead is Brooke Adams, but you, she, uh, unfortunately yeah. didn't really go on to, uh, do much else. Yeah. Um, so you've got those five, uh, people in, in the cast. Um, and it is, uh, the, Basic plot points are the same as the original, but it moves from a small California town to San Francisco. Um, and uh, everything is kind of expanded in a way, not like the sort of typical Hollywood remake of let's just make everything bigger. Yeah. Maybe that was the from the studio side of it. The, that was what they wanted to do. Um, but it allows him to go, uh, Philip Kaufman, to go deeper and see more offshoots of... Um, uh, of this of this thing um one of my favorite things that's very that's a very subtle difference um between this and the 1956 one although maybe i haven't seen the 1956 one in a long time maybe this is there and i just didn't catch it um but you very much when you watch the 1956 invasion of the body snatchers um you're very much allowed to believe probably correctly that you and the main characters are coming in at the beginning of this invasion mm-hmm. but there are clues early in Invasion of the Body Snatchers that, like, you're just learning about this because Donald Sutherland's character is just learning about this. Yeah. This has been, like, this invasion has already started and has been going on for a little while. Yeah. Um, that's a really cool little uh, uh, twist and a little a different way to approach uh, the story and it because it makes it... It makes it bigger and smaller at the same time because yeah. it makes it about this huge invasion, but also it very much gives you um, the point of view that you're just seeing one person or one uh, or a couple people with him and Brooke Adams, just their, their experience of it. And there are countless stories like this going all going on all over, um, San Francisco and eventually, uh, Northern California and theoretically eventually the rest yeah, of tomorrow. The, the world. world. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really, really effective movie. It really gets the, the paranoia and this feeling of you're all alone. And I think that actually is the advantage of big city versus small town is if you're alone in a small town, yes, it can be very lonely, but if you're alone in a big city and there's th- hundreds of thousands of people against you, like there's really an element of, okay, so this may be kind of a, a weird place. Um, in a small town, there's nowhere to go. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Run into the desert? In a big city, there's nowhere to hide because everyone is everywhere. Right. Um, yeah. I know it's a different, it's like, and I just came up with that, so I'm not sure how much I stand by it, but uh, I don't know. I feel like the paranoia is heightened, but this also touches a certain thing for me. Uh, in movies, whether they be action movies or, or horror movies, there's something about a person alone um, surrounded on all sides by enemies. It could be they're in the middle of a Nazi occupied territory. It could be zombies. Yeah. It could be whatever it is. Um, body snatchers, body snatchers. Uh, it could be that one of the only episodes of star Trek I ever saw, which admittedly captain Kirk is not surrounded by that big lizard thing. 
that he's fighting, but it's one-on-one. And it's this feeling of like, I, I don't have any friends. You know, mm-hmm. I feel the same way about uh, the end of Predator, um, okay. where it's just like, you can't get away. There's nowhere, you, there's nowhere you can hide. There's nowhere you can go. It's just you and this one thing or these many things. It's you against this force that is so much bigger than you. And it is, to me, really stressful. <laughs> Very <laughs> terrifying. Um, yeah. And uh, I also like that in addition to all of that, the movie also is quite cur- quirky. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. It has a lot of uh, weird lines of dialogue and like... Um, Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright are like a married couple who are like intellectuals, but also they like own and run like a mud bath house yeah. thing. It's like, a, it's a really weird. Yeah. And I think it kind of taps into that, like a late seventies, like I'm okay. You're okay. Like self-help mm-hmm. uh, thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then it says, uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. You're not okay. <laughs> In fact, yeah. you're not even going to be you for uh, much longer. Yeah. But it's, um, I guess that's in, there's a lot of different ways to read all the different uh, Body Snatchers mm-hmm. movies. There's four of them off the top of my head, right? There's Invasion of the Body Snatchers 56, Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78, Body Snatchers 93, yeah, and, and the, the invasion, invasion 2007. Yeah. I've only seen the first two. Um, I hear Body Snatchers is great, though. Yeah, um, it's with... Uh, uh, wait, is that with Christopher Reeve? Or am I thinking of a I, different type of movie from the 90s? I don't know. Um, um yeah, I think I am actually, but yeah, I want to say this one has Annabella Sciorra in it, maybe. Oh boy, I don't know. Linda Fiorentino. I feel like there's a woman with an Italian name. Yeah, in absolutely. Um, uh, anyway, the, you know, obviously McCarthyism is one of the big things that gets pointed to about the 1950s, yeah. and there's a lot of things about the 1970s and that sort of paranoia too. Yeah, but it, there is. I like that there's this self-help uh idea and like who leonard nimoy's character is yeah. it's kind of like a he's kind of like a brainier dr phil type yeah um uh and this idea of everyone working on making themselves better but really maybe they're just all making themselves the same yeah you know that's um, true yeah it's interesting all right do you have another one or just this i have i don't gonna be don't breathe uh i have so four more movies okay um but, and I'm going to go out of order because I, I'm liking uh, the themes we've got going. So uh, I rewatched the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead. Speaking of what I was just talking about. Gabrielle Anwar. Okay. That's who was in that. So it wasn't Annabelle Sciorra or Linda Fiorentino. But she changed her name from Gabriella Anwario. <laughs> so you're right about the Italian thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, uh, I watched, obviously I watched Dawn of the Dead, or rather rewatched it because we're recording those uh, zombie commentaries in a couple of days, and, I'm, and I hadn't seen the movie since the theater, and uh, I don't want to go into too much detail because I, you know, I want people to buy that commentary, but um, when's the last time you saw it? Um, I missed which one you were talking about. Uh, the, the remake. Uh, oh, when was the last time I saw the whole movie? Yeah. It's been... 10 years probably okay. when was the last time i watched the up to the opening credits part i don't know maybe a year i like, sure. to, I like to visit revisit sure. the opening of that movie every once in a while because it's brilliant yeah i remember liking it a lot more than i actually do um it is still very effective and the script is still fun it's james gunn um mm-hmm. st louis there you go <laughs> uh i wasn't so, gonna do it uh Yeah, so 
I think it's the thing that gets me in, in watching Dawn of the Dead again is that it wasn't particularly scary. It's, it's at best stressful, but it's not even that very often. Um, the, the characters are fine. It's nice seeing Rames. I say that as though it wasn't 12 years ago, but, um, Ty Burrell is kind of the only one that has any kind of real pulse. Uh-huh. Um, Mackay Pfeiffer's story is interesting, but yeah. by and large, just like, and you know what, Michael Kelly, um, as the, the chief uh, security guard, oh, right. um, yeah, I, I like him that. a lot. Um, but just by there, I, in watching oh. it, there's a lot more Zack Snyder than I remember. Hmm. Um, as far as use of color, use of slow motion, um, you see so many, when we record, you'll see. There are so many, sh- uh, you know, shotgun shells dropping in slow motion to the floor. Wow. I and, don't remember uh, that part of it. Yeah. Oh, you'll see. But um, it's still enjoyable uh, on the whole. But it's one of those things where I guess it is, it adds up to more than the sum of its parts, but still not very much. Um, it really is, that intro is amazing. The opening credits are solid. But by and large, there's just not that many... There's just not that much that I found remarkably compelling. Like, if you're not going to be that scary, then you need to create characters that I'm involved in, and I'm not in this. So I, I was kind of bummed, because I remember really liking it at the time. So. Okay. Moving right. on. Yeah, I'm going uh, to do three, because I'm going to do one, and then the other, okay. one, the other two kind of go together. All right, I um, have three more. Okay. So uh, I saw a new uh, Brazilian movie called The Tenth Man that is a delightful movie um it's basically about a uh it's the tenth man is the um uh uh, the american release or english language release title um the um brazilian title translates to uh the king of the eleven and i guess from what i understand the eleven is the name of a uh, of the sort of Jewish neighborhood in Buenos Aires, mm. um, so it's a very it's a very specific milieu. I uh, don't I haven't, seen, I haven't seen a lot of movies set among the Brazilian Jewish community. Yeah, um, and this is a character who's uh, the main character is from uh, this neighborhood now lives in New York City, but is going home for uh, for Purim, um, which I know Home for Purim is the name of the fake movie yep. in uh, for your consideration. But he really is going home for Purim. Uh, and it's the movie's most about, mostly about his relationship um, with his father, who, um, which is a very contentious relationship. His father runs a charity and nonprofit, and um, um, the name "The King of the Eleven that's said to our main guy about his father uh, because everyone loves him because he gives away, uh, you know, gives clothes and he gives. Uh, food and toys for children and he like uh, he runs this charity and uh, everyone uh, loves him but um, uh, our main character whose name I keep forgetting um, often feels that his father growing up neglected him for this charity work Um, so he shows up and for most of the movie his dad just keeps calling him on the phone and sending him on errands for the charity and he's in town days and days and still hasn't actually seen his father, uh, face to face. The movie is about 80 minutes. Um, it's, uh, very, uh, pleasant and enjoyable mm. and it is just a real good time at, at the movies. <laughs> um, and, 
has some well-earned uh, uh, uplift by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tenth Man. I highly recommend this movie. Okay. Uh, and then the other two, um, I watched back-to-back, rendered from Amazon, uh, some Jerry Lewis movies because I realized I hadn't really seen any Jerry Lewis uh, movies in terms of stuff that he's directed. Uh, and so I watched two of what I understand to be the big ones, um, The Nutty Professor and The Ladies' Man. Um, and Jerry Lewis was not a very good director of movies. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've seen these movies. I've seen neither, no. Um, there, there are scenes in them and sequences that are inspired um, from a comedian standpoint, from a showman standpoint, and especially when you get to the ladies, man, there is some cinematic stuff that is really cool. But he seems to have no interest whatsoever in pacing or momentum. Um, the it, Both of them, like end with sort of like big scenes of pathos that are completely unearned by anything. It's just like all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I guess we're at the end because now one of the characters is going to make a big like speech. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, he also, uh, and maybe this is more a sign of the time, but I see other, you know, there are other comedies, uh, from the early 1960s that don't have this problem, but just like, holding way too long on a, uh, on a, on a laugh beat, yeah. like just, uh, him just reacting to something and then continuing to react for to it yeah. for a few seconds before the scene fades out. Uh, and I just, uh, it was unfortunate. I was, uh, not particularly happy, especially with the nutty professor, which, um, is only, I think inspired in the actual initial like transformation, which, um, becomes a horror movie, like a werewolf type of transformation. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it sort of feels like a schlocky 50s sci-fi movies because he's in the lab with like the right. bubbling things and the fire and beakers and stuff. And uh, um, his his transformation from uh, Professor Kelp into Buddy Love um, looks very painful, but then at the yeah. end of it, he's Buddy Love. He's yeah. uh, cool. That's, that's the best part. Ladies' Man, I'll spend... Uh, a little more time on because um even though it is equally a mess it is fascinating um in a i don't know to what degree it's uh intentional but in a postmodern way because uh, except for the prologue the entire movie takes place on one set that they clearly built which is because he becomes the Houseboy, he gets a job with a houseboy at a home that is like a boarding house for uh, young women in Hollywood who are trying to become actors or writers right. or whatever. Um, and uh, it's just one big set that when you pull back is like bisected like a dollhouse. So you can see mm-hmm. into what's happening in the different rooms. But then also that creates spaces where there would be walls and the characters don't pretend there are walls there. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they'll stand in one room and look out at something that's happening on the stairwell, and it's like, well, is this if this is supposed to be a real house, they wouldn't actually be able to see that. So it's upfront about the fact that it's taking place on a stage, yeah. and then it becomes there gets to be another level of it where the house is featured within the reality of the movie is featured on a television program, so it's a television production. So then you're seeing the cameras and equipment and stuff move around this house as it's as if it's a set, which it is and which the movie isn't really pretending that it isn't. It's really strange and 
fascinating. Yeah. And it's strange in a good way. That was my favorite stuff. It was, sure. It was cool to look at um, and cool to see him like sort of, I mean, this is going to be a, um, uh, quite a compare, quite a leap here, but sort of in an Orson Welles type way, because <clears> he's also someone with like the magnificent Ambersons and, and whatnot who would build sets that go on for a while. So you could see stuff going on in different, in different parts or yeah. in, uh, I only recently realized that in the movie, the stranger, uh, which, mm-hmm. um, that like the whole like town square, he like had built for the movie. Yeah. Uh, and so when characters are sitting inside, the stuff that's going outside is like part of the movie, like yeah. happening on a soundstage. Anyway, we're not talking about Orson Welles. Um, we're talking about Jerry Lewis. Um, <laughs> boy, what a, the Orson what Welles a of comedy. That, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, and I don't know, like, I don't know to what extent Jerry Lewis was like specifically trying to deconstruct the production of a movie mm-hmm. or if he's just going for, the jokes and the bits so much that he's like, I don't care about pretending this is a real house, you know, pretending this, this works. Like, yeah. And there's one part during that, um, uh, that TV production when he accidentally unplugs, like a, uh, one of the women is wearing like a lavalier mic mm-hmm. and being interviewed and he accidentally pulls it out. So it unplugs. So her mic goes dead, but instead of just the TV production, not being able to hear her, the sound of the movie disappears. Yeah. There's no sound at all in the movie for like 20 seconds during that scene while he's like mugging and like doing like trying to get the mic back on weird stuff. And then yeah, there are, it sounds kind of fascinating. There are whole, um, uh, dance sequences that have like, there's a great, he goes into one room that is, uh, much like the TARDIS, uh, bigger on the inside. There's no way this room, could fit right. because it's in the middle of the house and then yet somehow has a balcony on it that opens up to the sky, which is clearly just a painted backdrop. Oh, and also there's a full orchestra on the balcony and he dances around with this woman and that's, um, hands down the best scene in the movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would, in summation, avoid the nighty professor. Literally the Eddie Murphy version is probably better, even though I haven't seen that in a long time, uh, and didn't really like it, but it's probably better. Um, but watch the ladies, man, because <laughs> there is some stuff going on. Yeah, some of it sounds, I'm overstating, a little Buster Keaton-esque, actually. Okay. Um, as far as, like, again, I don't know if this is actually the case, but a little deconstructionist. Um, but, uh, okay. All right, so, you got three more? Or three more. All right, go ahead. So I watched a movie directed by Joshua Marston called Complete Unknown. Mm-hmm. And it stars uh, Michael Shannon and your favorite actress, Rachel Weisz. And it is a very, very strange film in that... uh, So Michael Shannon is married to... He's married, he lives in New York, and he works a very, very boring job. Um, And then uh, we see Rachel Weisz. She is... She's, I think, just moved to New York. And she starts going out with a coworker of Michael Shannon's. And then she is invited to his birthday party. So everybody's there. And there's a big, uh, there's a big situation with he and his wife where they might move across the country to California. And so they're trying to figure that out. And then right in the middle of that, there's this birthday party. And then he sees Rachel Weiss and kind of gives her this look and she gives him a look and, and everything's fine. And then 
one thing that is revealed at his birthday party is that she talks about herself as, you know, she's a scientist researching like a certain type of frog in New York mm-hmm. and that kind of thing in the, in New York state, obviously. And, um, but then she also talks about how she did, she was a magician's assistant in China and she lived in New Zealand and all that kind of thing. And people are like, well, which, which is the, you know, did you do all of this? She says, yes, I did all of it. And, and she talks about how she actually has gone by a number of identities and, and that she will just pick up and leave. And, and all of the, all of these people get very angry at her because they're just trying to figure out what it is she actually does and if she's lying to them and all that sort of thing. So she finally leaves the birthday party. Michael Shannon goes after her and says, I haven't seen you in 15 years. What's going on here? And he calls her by a different name. And so then the two of them, it's established that they dated for uh-huh. a long time. And he was then a magician. He was a magician in China. <laughs> uh, but they were, uh, they were dating and then she just disappeared. And then all of the stuff that she says is in fact true. And so the two of them spend the rest of the movie just away from other people, just kind of talking about what her life is and what his life is. And it's a really... It's like my dinner with Andre. It is. They do interact with other characters, uh, Kathy Bates, uh, Danny Glover. But what's interesting is I feel like the whole thing is just a, a sort of meditation. At first I thought it was a meditation on acting because of just the way that she creates characters for herself and then just inhabits them and then goes from one to the other to the other and that people just do not understand. You know, People look at that and say, like, well, yes, but who are you actually? And it's like, well, it's not who I actually am. It's I am all of these people. At first I thought it was purely an acting thing, but I think it's larger than that. I think it's just about a life of creativity and that she is acting as the writer and the director and the actor of her own life and each of these lives that she's living is its own little work of art, whether she acknowledges or not. And it goes kind of to this idea that, you know, a work of art is never complete. It's, it's merely abandoned. And that's what happens is she gets to a point where she's like, all right, I think I have lived this life enough. And then she just walks out and goes to another country. And so I feel like it's, but that she, but she also still feels a certain degree of, of, of responsibility towards the people that she used to, that, that used to know her and, and that sort of thing. And so there's a lot going on and it's shot really well. And the two leads are marvelous and it's a very sharp script. And I, I just, I responded to it so much more than I thought I was going to. I thought it was going to be this stupid scandalous thing where, you know, he does, cause it's clear they know each other, but you're not really sure how. And you think, Oh, maybe she's like a mistress and it's not that it's, you know, it's a more innocent thing than that, but it's also infinitely more complex than that. And so it's, I, I, it's, it was, uh, put out by Amazon. And so I don't know what the situation is. I don't know if you can get it to VOD. It seems like the kind of movie you could, uh, but I know it's, it's playing in a few theaters in New York and LA. All right. Um, I saw a documentary that comes out, uh, in October. It's called fire at sea. Um, and, uh, take, it's about a small Island near Sicily, um, that, uh, happens to be directly in the path of a lot of, uh, um, immigrants fleeing, uh, Africa and trying to get to, to Europe. Um, they come sort of crammed onto boats where they're, 
Um, they've died. Many people have died of dehydration and starvation, and people are have been uh, gotten chemical burns from the fuel, and they're in rough shape. And um, this um, this island has become sort of a um, sort of a de facto Ellis Island, um, but it's also there's on essentially constant rescue missions because um, these boats they weren't planning to make it to this island they were planning to make it further but the island is as far as mm-hmm. they got and they go out there and rescue uh people uh, and so you see a lot of um this on these ongoing rescue missions and the the doctor who's in charge of um examining people uh and then meanwhile there's because this is a uh functioning um uh, island that has had uh, its own inhabitants uh, outside of these African immigrants for um, you know centuries or whatever, and so you also follow a sort of uh, typical multi generational family that lives and works uh, on the island. The the uh, uh, you know they're fishermen and um, just goes back and forth between those two things. It's a, a really terrific uh, movie that has um, uh, a lot of pretty heavy harrowing stuff in it with the, with the immigrants, um, and the, um, nightmares that they go through, but then also has some slice of life sort of comedy, uh, in it, especially with the, the kid of the family is, uh, just a natural on camera. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. a, it's a documentary, but he's like, he's hilarious. The scene where he has to go to the doctor and he's, he's like a nine year old kid, but he talks to the doctor like he's in like an old man. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so great. Um, yeah. So that's fire at sea. Definitely worth checking out. It won, uh, the golden bear. Oh, okay. It's a thing at a festival. It sure is. Um, you go again. Okay. Uh, I saw Jean-Francois Richet's blood father starring oh. Mel Gibson. Okay. Um, it's playing places and apparently has been or will be. I don't know. The distribution of this thing is a mess. <laughs> um, I think you can actually get it on iTunes now. Uh, it is in many ways a kind of a pulpy movie where it's this ex-con, this you know, middle-aged ex-con whose daughter disappeared years ago and then it turns out, uh, and, and he's just living in a trailer park. He's part of Alcoholics Anonymous and is just trying to get by and he gets a call from his daughter that she was involved in with this gangster and now she's in trouble. And so she, she starts to, so she goes to live with him and the gangsters follow her. And so the father has to protect her and that kind of thing. So very standard in a lot of ways where it is elevated is in Mel Gibson's performance. And I would say the casting of Mel Gibson. The very first thing that you see in the, not the very first thing, uh, the first time you see him, he is in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, though you don't realize that immediately. Um, you know, his face, he's got this white beard, his face mm-hmm. looks very craggy, and he just looks old and weather beaten. And he's talking about, you know, the mistakes that he's made over his year, over the years, and he says, you know, he said, I, I don't expect the people that I've hurt to to take me back. He said, you can't be an asshole your whole life and then say, oh, wait, never mind, and expect everything to turn out fine. <laughs> and there's such a, an element of shame and guilt and, and regret to his character that you can't help, you can't help but associate that with Mel Gibson. Yeah. 
and just feel, and so much of what he says, you feel like he's talking to you, the audience. And I feel like, uh, so by, even just by casting him, there's an element of, of bringing the audience in because it's not merely, I, I, in my review, this is basically how I end it, that it's a movie not just about him seeking redemption. It's about his daughter and other people extending forgiveness. And, you know, we in the audience definitely have feelings towards what Mel Gibson did and said. And uh, I found out on Facebook from a number of uh, people that I, I'm, I'm in a few movie-related Facebook mm-hmm. groups this is and uh, the one I'm about to say. I will go out of my way to say to say that it is not one of my Christian groups. Okay. I feel like I maligned them quite enough. Uh, this was a different one, and it they somebody was talking about Bloodfather, and I said, "Oh, it's actually very good, and he's very good in it." And they just said, "I just uh, don't think I can uh, forgive him. I think he hasn't uh, he hasn't apologized enough. He hasn't done this or that." And I just remember thinking, like, "Look, I get it." maybe some things are unforgivable, but at the same time, like what, you know, what are we willing to forgive and what does a person have to do? Is it just that they don't deserve to work anymore? Uh, Maybe that's the case. I don't know. And it's just, it's a movie that because of the nature of his character Mm. and the casting of him and his performance, he's a good actor. I forgot that he's a good actor and he's very charismatic on screen. Um, But it's a movie that just, in my view, it forces you as an audience member to ask you uh, to to ask yourself that not merely about Mel Gibson, but maybe about other people in your life that that have done things that you view as uh, unforgivable and that sort of thing. So there's a lot going on. the The performances all around are great. William H Macy is in the film, um, as is uh, Miguel Sandoval, who's a character actor you and I really yeah. enjoy. And then uh, Michael Parks, who is quickly becoming yeah. Hollywood's uh, go-to guy for everything great. Um, <laughs> he's just marvelous. And it's just a, it's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but there is greatness in it. And, uh, and Mel Gibson is, is, is solid, and I think he brings a lot of himself to it. And what he doesn't bring, we will. And I think that's the key. Uh, all right. Um, moving on to my final movie, I watched the new Criterion Blu-ray of... Uh, now I'm forgetting the director's name, uh, who made Tom Jones, Tony Richardson. Yeah. Uh, Tony Richardson's a taste of honey. Um, this movie is awesome. Okay. I love it so much. Uh, you and I remember, um, back when we were college roommates, we watched, uh, look back in anger, which yep. is the Tony Richardson movie and is, um, considered part of the quote unquote, uh, angry young man. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, genre. A taste of honey is essentially the angry young woman, uh, okay. genre. Um, it's, uh, an actress whose name I'm forgetting and it's the middle of the night right now and I'm too tired to pick up my phone and look it up. But she's she played, quote-unquote, the girl in Dr. Zhivago. Do you know? Okay. The, uh, you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, she is a, uh, I guess, around high school age uh, student who lives with her, um, who, uh, a single mother, um, and the mother is uh, kind of a mess um, and values the men in her life over her own daughter and uh eventually the girl finds herself sort of uh out on her own when uh, her mother chooses uh, another man who can't stand her and explicitly makes the mother choose between him and her daughter and she hmm. chooses the man um and so this uh girl is um working at a shoe store living in a uh 
crummy apartment and uh, a flat. Uh, yeah, a crummy flat. Um, and then uh, she has a brief love affair with a. Uh, this is a movie that is 1961, I should say, because um, these things are kind of remarkable. What I'm about to say, she has a brief love affair with a black sailor, hmm. um, and then when she's out on her own, um, becomes uh, dear friends and um, eventually roommates with a young gay man, uh, and. The movie is astounding enough on its own. It's it's really well made um, and uh, touching and funny and sometimes very poetic. Um, but uh, it's also the 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 um, care with which it treats these characters is um, something. Sometimes it's easy to look at the past and say like, oh, people were just all less tolerant or more ignorant back then. And to see, um, even though there, you know, some of the ways that blackness or gayness is talked about is like a little cringy today, but that's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of compassion in the, in the portrayals. Um, uh, it's a really fantastic movie. I I was not, uh, yeah, I was not expecting, uh, it to be as good as it was. I feel like when I hear, when I think of Tony Richardson, I think of look back in anger and Tom Jones, which I haven't seen. Um, and, uh, I'm so, I was surprised that criterion put out, a taste of honey before they got around to Tom Jones because, mm-hmm. um, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago that, um, I felt like Tom Jones might be on criterion. Apparently in the time since then, there have been more, uh, uh, clues that Tom Jones is coming to the criterion collection. Mm. Um, and I thought it was weird that a taste of honey came out first, but, uh, nope, it's, it's really great. All right. Uh, and you got one more movie, right? I have one more. I have Robert Eggers, the witch. Oh, the Vavitch. The Vavitch. Uh, have you seen it? No, I haven't. All right. Uh, listeners have been telling me, of more than one lesson, been telling me for months and months that I got to see this dumb thing. Uh, I'm joking, of course, it's marvelous. Um, uh, stay tuned for, you know, I think it'll be second weekend, uh, second week of October. Uh, I'll be doing a more than one lesson episode about it um, with the companion film, The Shining. Uh, so, and I, I don't even want to go into much, into too much detail about it right now, partially because you haven't seen it, but also there's just, and I think you would love it. I, it's just, there's so many elements to it that I think uh, are are marvelous. It takes place in, I would say the 1600s, um, in New England. So it's all, you know, British and, uh, Scottish, you know, immigrants and, and that sort of thing. And, and this family leaves a, a plantation and goes to live out on their own. And they start to notice some things happening and they start to suspect each other of witchcraft and that sort of thing. The acting is wonderful all around. Every member of that family is uh, astounding. And there's such sensitivity. There's a general, not even condemnation, but there's just a, there's an acknowledgement of on the part of the film that yes, some of the things that these people believe and maybe the way in which they believe it is not uh, a good thing and can be quite damaging, but it still actually has a lot of patience and a lot of grace for these characters and an understanding that they are trying their best and they actually do love each other and that sort of thing. And, you know, you go in and you kind of know, you have an idea of, okay, I know how they're going to treat the father. I know how they're going to treat the mother. And then it doesn't. Um, or if it does, it's only for a moment and then you get another dimension. Um, so 
you know, it's creepy when it needs to be creepy, but it is more than anything. It's more of like a period drama with, with supernatural horrific elements to Mm -hmm. it. And I'll say this on the part of the, the script, it's all these and thous and yees and the, you know, delivered with, in some cases, like some thick accents. And sometimes it's hard to understand. And it really is, it, I, I think you can sum it up from an artistic standpoint with just the word commitment. Everybody is committed from the writer, you know, committed to writing the way they probably talked at the time, no matter how much it might distance the audience, um, to the actors just full on embracing their characters. And it's just a, a really astounding movie that has, that ends in kind of an unsettling way, but there's so much, as I've said before, I, I, I kind of believe that, that a movie is what, is about how it ends because that's what the director wants you to think about as you're leaving. And there's definitely that, but there's, there is another, there's the actual ending, which you're supposed to think about, but then there's actually another ending that's almost, it almost functions as sort of an act break and it's so definitive. And the tone of that ending is in such conflict with hmm. the ending of the, uh, the, the, the full ending of the film that I find myself feeling like, Oh my gosh, this movie is doing a lot. And I'm very excited to talk about it on more than one lesson. And it's a movie that everybody should see. If you are a horror fan, I will say this is not your standard horror movie. Um, like I said, it could be seen as I'd say this is more on par with something like Rosemary's baby or the wicker man. Um, than anything, even, People said it was sort of like the Babadook. The Babadook is, you know, the height of mainstream horror compared to this thing. Um, but this thing is really something special. All right. Um, one TV show, just want to mention The Night Of um, on HBO, uh, which I thought was a fantastic procedural that would um, sometimes for long, long stretches of time uh, drop the procedural elements altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, focus on its its characters in in different ways um sometimes i do think it was a little on the nose in terms of um the 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 one character played by riz ahmed the one who was uh, accused of the murder um his arc is clearly being used to illustrate a point about um whether someone the point being whether or not someone is a criminal when they go into prison, mm-hmm. they probably will be when they come out. Um, and uh, while I think that's an important point to make, there are times where you can kind of see the screenwriter uh, at work, like right. making this choice is happening because I need to make this point, not necessarily yeah. because the character made it. And I think that's, that's the weakest uh, part, but even within that, you've still got great performances in, inside the prison from Riz Ahmed and uh, Michael K. Williams, um, and then outside the prison, you've got uh, John Turturro. And then the two character actors that I hope uh, get um, a lot more work based on their prominent roles on the night over, Bill Camp right. uh, as the detective, and Jeannie Berlin as the uh, um, uh, district attorney. You know who Jeannie Berlin is? No. Do you remember? She's in the trailer of Inherent Vice. She has the thick pancake makeup on it, and she's talking about the... Uh, Nazis and uh, I do not recall. Okay, um, if you saw her, you would recognize her. She's a very sure. distinctive voice. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, they're they're terrific. Um, 
uh, overall, I was really happy with the with the series and the way it ended. It ended um, in some ways more definitively, and in other ways more open endedly than I uh, expected it to. Yeah. Uh, so, with all this talk about uh, uh, religious satire, uh, whether it be Sausage Party or the episode that I recorded for more than one lesson this week. Um, I went back and watched the three-episode arc on South Park, Imagination Land. Oh, wow. Um, you've seen it? Yeah. It wasn't just because you had uh, Mel Gibson on the brain? Well, there was oddly enough, there was that, too. Yeah. And it has one of my favorite moments where, you know, they, they're trying to, the, the government is trying to figure out, like, okay, the terrorists have taken our imagination hostage, so we're going to bring in some of our, fa- you know, some great Hollywood storytellers to see what they think. And... And M. Night Shyamalan comes in and just comes up with a twist. And they're like, that's okay. We don't need that. And then Michael Bay comes in and just goes, bam, boom. And then Gibson comes in and he's just like, and of course he's rubbing his nipples like, oh, they hurt, you know, and all that sort of thing. And then they say, well, Mr. Gibson, what do you think about this? He goes, well, you should try doing this and this and this. And like, hey, wait a second. That, that makes sense. And then I, they say, it's like, he may be crazy, but the son of a bitch knows structure. And, uh, and you know, uh, I, moments yeah, like that are great. True. And just, uh, there's a nice little saving private Ryan, Ryan moment in, oh, in, yeah. in there. And it's just uh, tremendous fun. And, and there's, there's a, a brief moment of, of religious satire that I actually think is very interesting and infinitely smarter than anything that they do in sausage party. And it's just, it's just nice that uh, I, I'm comforted that South Park is out there. No matter how <laughs> mediocre film or TV can yeah. get or comedy can get, South Park is still out there. This most recent season was great uh, for the vast majority of it. And like that Imagination Land thing was like like eight years ago now. It still feels very new to me, but no, it, yeah. was, it was that long ago. And so, um, yeah, South Park is just... Uh, Every once in a while, they have like a little dip, but they always come back really strong. Um, okay. Do you think instead of uh, our normal uh, outro music, I should end with the imagination song? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Oh, that's too bad. Um, that's something Paul would do over on Hey, Watch This. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, okay.